Hello and welcome to episode 252 of the Samuel and Manuel Movie Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Sam Reimer. And I'm uh, Manny Manuel. Manny, I think I've asked you this before, but I can't actually remember yeah. the reason. Every time I give the intro, you give a little... You give a little kiss to the heavens. I do. Above you. I don't know if I've ever asked you about that before. I have no idea why. It's cool. It's, it's good to rely on. But the last few times we've done the show, I've been like, oh, I got to remember to ask him about that. And then I always forget to. I honestly, I I think, I think I've, I, I'm almost positive I stole it from Big Poppy. Yeah, you must have. I'm almost that is certain he does it there when, like, whenever he would hit a home run, I think he would do that. He would do the two finger point though, right? He would, he would. In my head, I can see Big Poppy gesturing at the heavens with two hands. I don't know. It's definitely, I've definitely. St- it's from baseball. Yeah. There is probably numerous baseball players that after they touch home plate, they kiss their finger and they point to the sky. Mm. And I think for me, it's I love doing this so much that the moment you start with that <laughs> intro. I am filled with such joy. I just want to express my gratitude to the heavens. I am not a religious man, but pointing to the heavens, I, I believe, is a, is, a, is a non-denominational thing. Cool. And uh, believe me, I'm not drawing attention to this yeah. to like embarrass you no, or to like, do anything like that. I think it's really cool that you do it. <laughs> like we, we each kind of have our rituals a little bit for, for this. And after a certain point, I mean, we've been doing the podcast for like five and a half years now, I think. Yeah. Uh, after a certain point, you just kind of forget where they even came from so i couldn't remember if we ever talked about that before but that's uh that's that's good i'm glad that i have the reasoning for that now um i guess uh first things first uh apologies or maybe explanation in order Mm, no no episode last week we're running a week late yeah Uh, i just could not make it happen last week i could not cannot fit the podcast into into my busy schedule um as a matter of fact, do you remember, of course, last year I missed about two or three months of the, of the podcast? Close. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That, uh, the longest I went without watching a movie in that time frame was 15 days. I just looked it up on Letterboxd. I went 15 days. Nice. Uh, Could I do that? Between, between draft day, which I believe is the last film we did. Is that really? I think so, right? Unless there's one that I didn't log in there. Rogue One. Oh shit! Okay, I didn't. I didn't uh, log Rogue One then. Okay, in that in that case, I probably went about fifteen days as well because I counted twenty two on my letterbox, but I actually hadn't logged uh, Rogue One, so I probably matched my my hiatus from last year. I went fifteen days without without watching a movie. I don't. I don't like that. I mean, I I like the things I was doing instead. It's mostly just been me trying to catch up on music stuff, rehearsals, and shows. As you know, I also just went on a work trip to Toronto. Um, that uh, all that kept me busy. But yeah, I went 15 days between Rogue One and uh, the next movie I watched after that. So, Rogue One you watched on the 24th, then roughly. I think I watched it on the. I think I watched it on the Sunday. On the Sunday. I think so. <clears throat> so if I go back two weeks, mm-hmm. do I know how many movies I would have not watched? Gonna say probably about fourteen, probably about one a day. I'm ahead of last year's pace, which is crazy to me, man. One, two, three, four, five, six. Seven, As we talked eight. about before we went on air, you're probably not gonna be able to keep that up for like even in the next couple weeks. That pace will probably drop off, I imagine. As uh, as things in your life begin to change, but yeah, for right now, we're in we're in May. We're almost halfway through the year, and you've exceeded your previous year's pace, which is pretty pretty wild. <clears throat> you said I probably missed about fourteen films. Yeah. Uh, 26. I've watched 26 what? movies in the last two weeks. Two a day, basically? Pretty much. Wow. Pretty much. Pretty much. 
there's a part of me which uh, misses being able to do that. Uh, but there's another part of me that's like, man, even two a day is a lot. Yeah. That's, a, that's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> that doesn't include the two shows I'm watching as well. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. I say I haven't watched a movie in two weeks, roughly, or I hadn't watched a movie in two weeks. I uh, I had been watching episodes of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, so it's not like I hadn't been watching anything. Yeah. Uh, but I missed movies. And then I, uh, being on a plane to Calgary and then to Toronto, mm-hmm. I had a bunch of time away from the internet where I had to download movies to watch. Uh, legally, of course. Legally, yeah. <laughs> Just downloaded them off Prime. Hell yeah. But uh, yeah, so I, I managed, to, managed to get a good weekend. I managed to get four in this week. Fill us in on the four you watched, Sam. Yeah, so um, all of these were done in the time it took me to fly from Kamloops to Toronto with a connecting flight in the middle in Calgary, uh, with the exception of... I'll start with this one. I'll start, I'll start with this movie here. Um, just because I'm probably going to say the least amount about it for a reason that'll become apparent shortly. So I this morning, the first thing I did before watching the movie we we're going to talk about today was I woke up and I finished this movie, which I didn't get to finish on the plane. And that is one of my... A movie that's becoming one of my favorites, actually. It's Inside Lewin Davis. That's definitely making your new top 20. I think it is. I, I thought about that today as I was watching it. So, uh, okay, it's directed by Ethan and Joel Cohen, written by Ethan and Joel Cohen, starring Oscar Isaac. A week in the life of a young singer as he navigates the Greenwich Village folk scene of 1961. Um, so on this work trip, I just went on meeting up with a bunch of my Long and McQuaid coworkers from all around the country. It was really cool to be able to talk about music with a bunch of like-minded people, all these people play a variety of instruments, have a variety of projects on the go in varying genres. And it was just really cool being able to connect with those people um, who I had never met before over, over some common ground. And it really got me thinking about music and artistry. And I had, I knew that I had to download several movies off Amazon prime for the ride back because that was the main service I have on my laptop that I pay for. And you do have the option to download and I've talked about this film before and what it means to me, but the more I watch it, I seriously don't know if there's a movie which speaks to me more about the nature of being an artist and the way that, uh, the way that you can kind of fall in love with the pain that it brings. The, the way that Lewin in this film gets shat upon, he misses opportunity after opportunity, um, is abused verbally by many people in his life, feels like a loser, gets kicked off stage, uh, the way that life continually beats down on him, but he kind of fetishizes that sadness, to steal a phrase from BoJack Horseman. He fetishizes that sadness that he feels. And this is one of those films where the more I watch it, the more I feel there is to unravel. Um, I won't get too specific into the Cohen's approach to this film, because obviously we're going to be talking about them with Miller's Crossing. Uh, but suffice it to say, one of the highlights of the film is the minor characters. If there's one calling card of the Coens that I really like, it's the way that they just populate these worlds with the zaniest, funniest characters played by very interesting-looking character actors. They just have an eye for people. They have a real eye for casting. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> if you're a musician, I highly recommend Inside Lewin Davis. If you're not a musician, I think you could even get something out of it. I know Manny watched it and didn't connect with it in the same way I did. I, I, don't let me speak for you, but I'm pretty sure it was like a three out of five. Respect the artistry, but didn't connect on an emotional level sort of situation. There's no way it was less than a three because I didn't hate it. Yeah. But it did not connect with me. 
if you like the Coen's approach to film and their sometimes unorthodox approach to endings for films, I think this is a really good one. And um, I'll, I'll kind of leave it there, but I really enjoy this film. When we go do our top 20s over again, I will. I, I know that this will be on the short list. Should we do that for 300? I think we should. I would love to go redo my top 20. And I think it would actually be a pretty severe change, actually. I I've think, been thinking about it a lot. I think the list really would. I think we should just lock that in. Yeah, okay. Are we going to make it a two-parter, or are we going to rush through it since there's going to have a lot of crossover? There's going to be some crossover. I don't think we should like, Not plan- crossover, but like carryover. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Like there will be a lot that are the same, even though there will be some fresh names on there. I think planning for it to be a two-parter might be a bit of a, bit of a stretch. The last one we had close to 40 films to talk about and i say close to because there was i think three movies that we that we had overlap there's only three i thought there was more in my head there was three town sunshine private ryan is that it i think so yeah i'm gonna say there was three because do you know how many films we would have talked about then if it was if it was three movies that overlapped would have been 37 so that just seems like a good number (laughs) are you just double checking the math or double checking the uh the facts on that one? Yeah, that's correct. Three. Man's got a spreadsheet for anything. For some reason, I definitely thought it was more. No. Our tastes don't overlap that much. Because all of our other lists are like seven. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, all of our other lists have, um, let's say, tighter constraints True. Than, than this one. Did you give your rating for Inside? Uh, I haven't yet, but it's a, it's a five. Yeah, I figured. It's a, it's a very easy, very clear five. So, cool. That is Inside Lewin Davis. Another one that I was embarrassed to not watch sooner, but I'm happy to get to talk to you about now. <laughs> so Manny chose me for the Manny Movie Club, and when he did, I remember thinking to myself, like, shit, I'm going to need to find time to watch this movie. Little did I know, I wouldn't even have time to watch the movie we were doing for this podcast, which is always my first priority to get watched every week. Um, so the movie that fell second in the priority order also suffered as a result. I did eventually get around to watching Rush, nice. the 2013 film. Uh, another rewatch for me. I think, uh, let me just double check this. I'm pretty sure this is true what I'm about to say. These were all rewatches? Yes, these were all rewatches that I did this week. I just wanted to watch some good fucking movies. <laughs> but, There's but nothing wrong with that. Watch. Um, it's directed by Ron Howard, written by Peter Morgan. The merciless 1970s rivalry between Formula One rivals James Hunt and Nicky Lauda. I am not an F1 fan. Neither am I. Uh, hi, Richard, if you're listening. But you know that I'm not an F1 fan, and I'll talk to you about this film if you, if you want. But this is one of the best modern sports movies that I've seen in a long time. It is it is consistently an exciting movie and gets me going. For all of F1's drawbacks as a sport, let's say, it is a great movie sport. It is, it's a great movie sport because you can really lean into the adrenaline. You can lean into guys in compact steel boxes going hundreds of miles an hour uh, around the track uh, within inches of death at many times. It's certainly a sport which lends itself really well to film. Um, the only sport that I think is better for film really is baseball because you don't you have all the one-on-one drama of mm-hmm. pitcher versus batter, but you don't have masks obscuring faces. You have uh, you have clear faces making expressions. But, but anyway, I digress. Um, Rush is one that uh, I th- we've talked about many times. I can't remember how this film first found its way onto my radar, but I've seen it probably three or four times now. It gets better every time. Daniel Bruhl is a is an actor who I really like. Obviously, being from Inglorious Bastards and many others. Uh, 
is it Winter Soldier that he first appears in in, uh, in the MCU? Yeah. Is that his only appearance in the MCU? I feel like there's more. Falcon the Winter Soldier. Right, which I haven't seen. Uh, but Daniel Bruhl is, of course, a phenomenal, phenomenal actor. And then Chris Hemsworth, I think, also has one or two appearances in the MCU, but I would have to, I'd have to look that up. Um, yeah, if you're looking for a good sports movie uh, and a good movie about the nature of rivalry, highly recommend Rush. Um, that really is what it is. I keep calling it a sports film, but really it is a film about the nature of rivalry and the nature of competition. There's these two men who really hate each other. Apparently the film really plays up how much they hated each other and their relationship in real life really closer, just resembled a friendship. It was less of an outright rivalry, but, uh, this is a movie which really goes to show how much a rivalry and how much competition and how much having somebody to compete against, how much that can make you better how much it's just a film about the way that having somebody looming over your shoulder and the threat of being displaced can motivate you to be the absolute best you can be for better or for worse. Sometimes Mm -hmm. at the expense of relationships and your mental health and your physical health. Um, Sometimes all that can uh, fail as a result, but ultimately having somebody to compete against makes you a, a better competitor yourself. And I don't think I've seen a film that adequately adequately makes that point in the way that Rush does. I love that. Uh, I love this movie. I loved it from the moment I saw it. Uh, I think this is one of Ron Howard's best films. This might... I would actually like to take a look at his uh, total filmography. Maybe I should get around to ranking his movies that I've seen. Mm-hmm. That would be fun. Um... I just, as I was thinking, I just added you into the Rush chat group so you can take a look at everybody else's thoughts and stuff on there and then um, finish up with your own, with the wrap-up we do. I'm Mm -hmm. sure everyone would love to hear it since it was your pick. (laughs) Yeah, a little late to the party. Uh, It's an absolutely fantastic film. If you have not seen Rush, I highly recommend it. It is a truly great sports film. Uh, The the rivalry that you speak of between Nicky Lauda and James Hunt uh, is a lot of fun. Uh, Daniel Bruhl is spectacular. Uh, I love his performance. Chris Hemsworth is charming. And when you see Chris Hemsworth's performance and then you just see James Hunt, you get that perf- – you see that energy matched. Like just the little clips they have of James Hunt at the end, you can see what Chris, Chris Hemsworth was trying to get across mm-hmm. in that smile. Um, it's a great – thoroughly enjoyable film that I uh, I had a I always have a blast. It's it's a movie it's a movie I'm always happy to put on just to have on. To just you don't have to you don't have to invest in it. It can be on and you can just enjoy it. I, I it's it's a it was a thoroughly enjoyable movie. Yeah, oftentimes in the film there are kind of moments where you don't even really need to know the specifics of what race is going on. Nope. Like the the stakes are basically the same in each one. There's these two guys who both think that they're the absolute best in the world and they're on a mission to prove it to the other guy and they're willing to die to prove it. Like yep. that's that's the stakes in basically every scene yep. in the film. So it certainly lends itself to being very exciting. Um, there's a scene in, air, in an airplane hangar at the end, which consistently... It's it's not an emotional scene in that it like makes me cry or anything like that. It's just one of the most effective scenes I've ever seen at summarizing a film's thesis of just, here's what the film's about, and just watching that these two people 
watching these two people respect each other and encourage each other in spite of everything that they've been through just speaks to me for some reason. Yep. I get it. I yeah. get it. Love it. Awesome. Rush is, Rush is a five. Five. <laughs> Four. Four for me. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Um, I love that you give it a five. Fuck yeah. yeah. Again, I... I'm, I'm, I've been giving a lot of fives recently. I'm fully aware. <laughs> and I think I think that's more a function of the movie selection than it is of uh, of anything else. But I've just been in a mood to go back and revisit some old favorites recently and been giving out a lot of fives. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Um, yeah, let's go here. L.A. Confidential. Fuck yes. Fuck yes. This is one we reviewed for the podcast, had its own devoted episode. And at the time, I remember this is one of the ones where I was saying you know what, this is maybe one I'm not in the right total mood for now. Maybe I can revisit it down the line. I've been meaning to for a long time. Manny and I are going to do 1997 after we do 1990. Um, but yeah, LA Confidential. Uh, as corruption grows in 1950s Los Angeles, three policemen, one straight-laced, one brutal, and one sleazy, investigate a series of murders with their own brand of justice. Um <laughs> Okay, so this has Kevin Spacey, Russell Crowe, Guy Pearce in it. This is right at the height of uh, Cro-mania. No. No? Is this right at the beginning? This is the, this is, this is the beginning. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Like, I wouldn't... I don't know if I would say this catapulted Russell Crowe into superstardom, but this is right at the beginning of one of the most legendary runs yep. that an actor has ever been on. This is, what's, this is what starts it. This is, this is where I discovered him. Mm-hmm. So when I and I hope you don't mind me jumping in here early, please. Um, like I said on the podcast, this w- this was the very beginning. He was um, very well known for I think a movie called Bronson, if I'm not mistaken. Anyways, it's about it's about an Australian criminal, if I'm not mistaken. A movie I have not seen. That's what got him a international attention. But this is the movie that put him on the map, and from he- after this, it just skyrockets. Because two years later, we have The Insider. Then we have Gladiator. Was I right? Is it Bronson? Uh, I don't see Bronson anywhere. Okay, what's um, what's before L.A. Confidential? Right before L.A. Confidential in 1995, he had four movies. The Quick and the Dead, No Way Back, Virtuosity, Rough Magic. What's before that? The Sum of Us. Keep going. Love and Limbo, For the Moment, Silver Brumby, Hammers okay. on the Anvil. What's after LA Confidential? Heaven's Burning, Breaking Up. Okay, so I'm 100% mistaken. I thought there was an Australian film that really catapulted him. The Quick and the Dead, sorry, is that 90, what year is 90, Quick and the Dead? Quick and the Dead is 95. And Virtuosity is 95 as well? Yes, correct. Virtu- Virtuosity is so fucking fun, man. <laughs> so fucking fun. <clears throat> but th- then we go, uh, so we got LA Confidential, and then 99, The Insider, 2000, yes. Gladiator, 2001, A Beautiful Mind, Master and Commander, Cinderella Man. Like, what a what a run that is, and then he kind of cools off after that. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, so LA Confidential is the beginning of that, and uh, man, was it a delight to rediscover uh, that performance. And got- so good. This is one of the best versions of the good cop, bad cop cliche uh that there is i think without it being a cliche yeah it doesn't feel like a cliche version of it, it feels like a fresh take it is a neo-noir it, do- it feels like a very new school take on this sort of thing and i think the inclusion of kevin spacey in there also kind of helps keep things fresh but yeah you get guy pierce as the straight laced by the book lieutenant who believes in traditional justice and the and the order of law and you get russell crowe who 
believes that in order for justice to be maintained, you sometimes need to uh, beat up and torture bad guys into confessions. And, you know, if you discover somebody who's uh, taking advantage of a woman in some sort of way, that person doesn't deserve to see the law system. They deserve to see multiple fists to the face. So two different approaches to... Two different approaches to uh, justice, and it's a, a film that really does a lot to explore those themes, and it's certainly a lot of fun. Guy Pierce, Russell Crowe, and Kevin Spacey all give fantastic performances, and the writing is really good. Um, I think I have the same feelings about the film that I had last time, which is mostly that I, I think the scenes of investigating and the crimes themselves are really interesting, and I just have very little investment in the Russell Crowe, Kim Basinger storyline. I, I don't really buy into that much, uh, but all the rest of it's very good. The All the violence and all the gunfighting all look spectacular. That gunfight in the moonlight at the very end oh. is a beautifully lit scene, one of the best lit scenes uh, I've seen in a long time. Uh, so big kudos to the fine people behind LA Confidential. It got a four again for me, uh, but I will definitely revisit it. I'll continue to revisit this from time to time. It's one of the best... Uh, one of the best neo-noir films out there right now. And uh, a, a fun side note about this is that my brother has listened to a band for many years, a band called Rolo Tomasi. No. Yes, there's a band called Rolo Tomasi. And I didn't know that he didn't know this, but about a year ago, he messaged me. He's like, did you know that Rolo Tomasi was a character in L.A. Confidential? I'm like, yeah, I've seen that movie. And he went on to watch it and said that he loved it. Good. <laughs> awesome. Did your brother give it a four as well? I can't remember. Did your brother give ratings? Yeah, he has Letterbox now. I should I should check what he has. Hold on. Do I'll, it. I'll, I'll find that. In. No, find it. I'll, I'll, I can talk about LA okay. Confidential. Oh, I'm sure you can. Fucking you can. rights I can. <laughs> uh, LA Confidential, five for me. Easy, five. I fucking love this movie. Uh, anytime right now that we talk about Kevin Spacey, it just makes me sad. Because I think about how fucking incredible he is as an actor. And it just saddens me. That he is just a monster of a man, and we lost that incredible talent. Because he would still be killing it today if he wasn't such a piece of human garbage. You have a rating? No, he has two Russell Crowe movies rated, but neither of them are LA Confidential. Uh, He has. I I told him to watch Master and Commander, and he gave it a four. A four? Yeah. (laughs) Jesus Christ, Nick. And uh, Gladiator, uh, four and a half. Okay. It's not on the show, so he's Gladiator allowed to give half points. higher than Master Commander. That I think, even though I I think I'm on your side in the sense I like Master Commander better than I like Gladiator, I don't think that's a popular opinion. I think It's not. I think most people would say they like Gladiator better. 100%. Yeah, that's more of a testament to how underrated Master and Commander is. Though. I agree. And I know Rachel right now is screaming yeah. at me. <laughs> <laughs> I fucking love Master and Commander. I cannot... W- that one... We're re-reviewing. We should. We oh we no we get to because that was one of the that was a fiver five in one episode. Oh yeah, that was back when we were doing five movies in one week for. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I I cannot I cannot wait to re-review that. I am dreading doing the Lord of the Rings movies. Dreading. No way, dude. Actively dreading. You didn't hate the Lord of the Rings when we watched it last time, though. No, but I don't love them. No. No. But not love to dread is a is a pretty big gap. Yeah, but I have I have no desire to revisit that series. Zero. Yeah. That's the dread. I'm like I have no desire. 
if uh, if you were somebody uh, inclined to drink alcohol, I'd say we should just get together and do the Lord of the Rings drinking game. But I saw this great clip. What was it? Uh, it was a uh, uh, the Lord of the Rings movie with every time uh, Legolas speaks to uh, Frodo. Yeah. And, and it's one scene. Yeah. There's a, so in the Lord of the Rings drinking game, there's a bunch of different rules of like take a drink every time you hear the word precious and stuff like that. And there's there's one that's uh every time two women talk to each other, finish your drink, and I don't think it ever happens. <laughs> <laughs> in like fourteen hours of extended edition material. It just doesn't happen. That's phenomenal. <laughs> Alright, what's the last movie you got? Last movie, uh Oh, by the way. LA Confidential, we reviewed in 2020. It was episode 96. That's a long time ago now. <laughs> yeah. Did, was the pandemic ongoing at that time? Oh, 100%. That, that's, ooh. That's or was March. that, or, that was March? March. So was right at the very beginning. Right, then. Yep. Interesting. Wow. <laughs> um, did we have somebody on for that one? I can't remember. No. No. No, no. You know what I've actually so this is a bit of a tangent here. You know what I oh, you, you no, know what episode no. I've kind of wanted to re-listen to recently? I've wanted to go back and listen to the Goodwill Hunting one because that was we had T-Bone on for that one, mm-hmm. but that was right at the very beginning of the pandemic. I I think we recorded that like March 12th, 2020 or something like that. Or March 11th maybe, I don't March know. March 16th. March 16th. Yeah, so that's like the week that everything happened. So I'm very curious to go back and listen to it and Kind of see how what we all thought of everything. If I'm not mistaken, it's our most still our most listened to episode, which is kind of funny. It's kind of disgusting. I wonder if the pandemic played into that, or if it was. Uh, it's possible. Well, he. I think he did tell all of his students to go listen to it. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> Partially just to piss you off. I don't know. I, I'm glad he did it for that, and not the other one he was on. Oh yeah, because he was on Dumb and Dumber, right? Yeah. Him and Kyle. That was a fun episode. Was it? Yeah. We had four <laughs> four people on the show. Three people gave it a five, and one person gave it a two. Yep. <laughs> that person was you. Okay. Last movie that I want to talk about this week. Uh, the 2014 drama sci-fi thriller. One that I've wanted to revisit for some time. Oh, shit. Was on... Oh, I should I should have had this pulled up before. Was, I believe, on my top ten of the decade list. Ex Machina. A young programmer is selected to participate in a groundbreaking experiment in synthetic intelligence by evaluating the human qualities of a highly advanced humanoid AI. Written and directed by Alex Garland, starring Alicia Vikander, Donald Gleason, and Oscar Isaac of Inside Lewin Davis fame. <laughs> I watched two Oscar Isaac performances this week, both of which are spectacular. You by mean the way. Triple Frontier fame? Yes. Oh, yeah. Oscar Isaac. You know, the guy from Triple Frontier. Yeah. That's how I usually do. Just... Oh, that guy. <laughs> that guy. <laughs> oh, Oscar Isaac. Yeah, okay. Go. I want to watch that again, actually, now that I think about it. Triple Frontier. That was a fun one. I fucking love that That was movie. a fun little episode. Um, I've been really curious to revisit this one ever since uh, ChatGPT kind of got popular. And people have been talking about AI again. It's all over the news again. Uh, talking about how we're all going to lose our jobs, how it's going to take over the world, yada, yada, yada. And the world has become really re-interested in AI. And I think uh, I read uh, one of the trivia notes on this film where Alex Garland said, uh, he, while he didn't give a specific year this is supposed to take place in, he said something like, 
Ex Machina takes place five minutes in the future, <laughs> where it's just close enough that it could feel like real life now, uh, but it's just far enough away that it still feels a little bit futuristic. And while the notion of an AI having a like a full humanoid body and a realistic looking face is still a bit out, and being able to talk this. Uh, being able to be this advanced and being able to make drawings and interpret art and stuff, um, that's still far off. Um, AI in the last nine years since Ex Machina came out has already made pretty scarily large strides. Massive. Massive strides. Massive so. strides. Just the the physical body is still nowhere close. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's that's the the most sci-fi element of this is that yeah. you could have a, a you know a, a body look. Uh, like a humanoid look that realistic yep. basically yeah um excellent performances all around it's a very intimate cast it's only really oscar isaac donald gleason and alicia vikander in the movie there's one actress whose name i don't have in front of me who plays um uh, oscar isaac's character's like, servant basically who doesn't mm -hmm. have any lines and other than that those are like the only four people in this movie um so it's very intimate takes place in a confined space certainly has horror elements in it there's a lot of things that occur in the movie that feel like a horror film mm -hmm. and it's very tense and it does a really good job of keeping you guessing all throughout the film it's one of these ones in my opinion that gets better on rewatch because you kind of pick up little things that you didn't expect to get the first time um i was so impressed with it on first watch because it totally didn't go where I thought it was going to go. I'm trying to be very vague about this because there's a couple of plot points. I just don't want to a couple of plot points. I just don't want to give away. Totally. But when I recommended this to one of my coworkers, he said to me, I've been avoiding watching that because I think I already know what's going to happen. And then he said a thing that he thought was going to happen, which I'm not going to repeat. Thank you. And I, I you may be able, you may be able to guess what that thing was. He's like, I think I know what's going to happen. I think it's this. And all, my only response to him was, I'm going to do my best not to react to that. I'm going to do my best not to tip my hand whether you're right or wrong. But even with that assumption, I think you'll get something out of this movie. Um, so I'll kind of generalize that to anybody who's considering watching Ex Machina. Um, if you are at all into sci-fi, if you're at all interested in AI, if you're at all looking for kind of a, uh, a mystery thriller sort of situation. Mystery might be the wrong word. If you're looking for like a, a thriller. It's a thriller. Yeah. If it's you're looking a for a thriller, um, that's quite an intense, intelligent movie. I think no matter what your preconceived notions are, you're going to go into it and really like it. It's one of the smartest films that's been released in the last 10 years, uh, and I will continue to go back and revisit it. And unfortunately, I think it's only going to get more true and more prescient and more uh, more relevant as, as time goes on. Like The Truman Show did. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know how you watch The Truman Show now and you just get a pit in the middle of your stomach? It's like... Wow, guy being watched all the time and has his entire life turned into a performance and has trouble separating his uh, his character from his personality. Thank God that never came to pass. Yeah. 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 I think we'll kind of feel like that about Ex Machina in the future. So um, this is another five for me. It, Look at you. Insanely intelligent movie and makes me, makes me giggle, makes me giddy. Um, yeah. So I watched those four in, the, in, in transit. From, nice, from one side of the country and back. That's a nice way. Did you find that the plane rides just kind of flew by because you were watching those? No pun intended. No fucking pun intended. <laughs> I know you never intend puns. But. I don't do. I don't do. I don't intend puns. You saw ever. me grinning. I did. 
Yeah. No, they, they, they went by so quickly and that's usually my strategy. I usually download some, some movies to watch. Um, there was a little bit of a discussion in the, in the film group about the nature of watching movies in public, whether that's on a plane or somewhere else in transit or somewhere else. Um, and how embarrassed you should or shouldn't be because Ex Machina has a fair amount of nudity in it. has yep. a fair amount of female nudity in it. Um, and I did find myself admittedly kind of looking over my shoulder like, hey guys, I promise I'm not a pervert. Like, I promise I'm not just like watching porn on this plane right now. It's mm-hmm. uh, it's a movie. But, uh, you know, I didn't That's a that. damn good one. You guys should watch it. Yeah. Uh, admittedly, I did have my pants off at the time so I can see why, I can see why people were looking at me strange. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've only seen Ex Machina once. Really? And, yep. And it's one that I am excited to revisit. Uh, I watched it so long ago, I wouldn't be able to give it a rating. I would say probably from my vague recollection, like I remember most of it and the gist of it, I would say it's probably a four. Probably a four. But that's unofficial. I really came to appreciate how good it looks mm. this time around. Like the cinematography of it for this Ooh, for this little intimate that dialogue heavy thriller it looks fucking phenomenal there's a bunch of shots of mirrors and reflections and visual symbolism and so it's very fucking good looking sweet and then you get you know naked alicia vikander hello <laughs> so yeah that is what i now my pants week. are off <laughs> nice of you to join me finally <laughs> <laughs> the people listening don't know nope they assume we're fully clothed they have no idea no. <laughs> four incredible films sam good for you my movies that i watched <laughs> out of the 26 since we last uh watched you're fucking insane <laughs> thanks buddy thanks buddy uh there's actually even more that i would like to talk about but i narrowed it down to these five i do have to get home eventually yeah and plus i can talk about some other one i can other ones but uh i'm gonna start with a movie that i actually thought i had seen before because it is, uh, it is on the AFI one, uh, top 100. It is considered one of the greatest movies ever to be made, and uh, I think my recollection of it is that it's just kind of so famous and its performance so iconic that I thought I had seen it. Uh, that movie is the 1982 comedy drama Tootsie, <laughs> starring Dustin Hoffman, uh, Jessica Lange, and Terry Garr. Uh, Michael Dorsey, an unsuccessful actor, disguises himself as a woman in order to get a role on a trashy hospital soap. This movie's really fucking good. And it's worthy of all its praise. Hoffman is spectacular. And as I was watching this, in my mind, I'm like, who the fuck beat him? Because I know he didn't win Best Actor. I'll be too. Should I know? When I say it, you'll be like, oh, yeah. But if you know off the top of your head, I would honestly be like, good for you, Sammy. Hint? Uh, Real life person. Real life person. Mm, I don't think I'm going to get it. Okay. Uh, it it, it is uh, Sir Ben Kingsley. Oh, for Gandhi. Yes. Yeah. See, as soon as I say it, you're <laughs> like, oh, yes. Uh, and again, like, I've never seen Gandhi. I desperately need to watch it now. Because I need to know why it beat this and E.T. for Best Picture. Sorry, you say you haven't seen Gandhi? Nope. I I saw Gandhi maybe, going to say, 12, 13 years ago. Mm-hmm. Don't remember a lot about it. Remember thinking it was 
good, not great. Um, I also remember thinking that it was really weird that they got noted white guy Ben Kingsley to play Gandhi. He uh, is part. Which which is where I was going. I For a long time, Gandhi was my go-to example of like Hollywood whitewashing. Like, I can't believe they got Ben Kingsley to play Gandhi, only to realize uh, his Ben Kingsley is not his real name. It's a stage name, and he is, I think, half Indian. Yeah, I think so. Um, uh, the other two movies that were up for Best Picture that year uh, was a movie I have seen called The Verdict uh, with Paul Newman. Fucking incredible. Uh, and a movie I haven't seen called Missing. Uh, so I am very excited to see Gandhi because I need to know um, why it won. Tootsie is, think of it as Oscar-level Mrs. Doubtfire is what it is. Mm-hmm. It is Dustin Hoffman is incredible because he plays this absolute pretentious prick of a stage actor in New York who is such an asshole, nobody wants to work with him. That's why he ends up... This is not spoilers. This all happens early. That's why he dresses up as a woman. And what happens is, is that he learns what it's like to be a woman in the early 80s because he has to deal with misogyny, with men not respecting him or his craft and all this as well as a romantic comedy because he falls in love with one of his co-stars who doesn't know he's a man. All while he has a kind of girlfriend who he does care for and he's trying to balance all of this together. Hmm. There are some... There isn't the type of hijinks like in Mrs. Doubtfire, like the restaurant scene. It's not like that. But there are times where he is trying to balance everything together. It's a really fucking good movie, uh, which, again, I don't know why I sound so shocked because it, it's on the AFI Top 100. It is considered a classic. It's an 88 Metascore. Yeah, isn't, it, isn't it usually listed as one of the greatest comedies of all time? Yes. Yeah. Um, the comedy... That and another film about dressing in drag. <laughs> uh, oh, Birdcage. Oh. Okay, two more movies about dressing in drag. What's Bird- the other one? Uh, Some Like It Hot. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Shout out to I Ray. Know, I don't know why I keep forgetting that one when I think about it. Yeah, that was a fun one when we did that. It was so good. We both really liked that movie. Um, yeah, if you haven't seen Tootsie, uh, I highly recommend it. Um, it is, right now, it's on free on CTV. Hmm. So, uh, yeah, it was. I gave it a four. Um, definitely could easily be a five, but I, I gave it a four. Hmm. Uh, oh, oh, there are some stuff that obviously haven't aged well. Oh, yeah, I was going to ask that as well. Yeah. Because 82 is, what, 41 years ago? Yeah. And didn't age well? There's some stuff in there that some people today might get a little twingy about. Yeah. <laughs> but. You have, to, you have to balance judging a film based on its merits today and based on its context. Like, Correct. You can take both into account. I yes. Think. And I, since I grew up then, I understand the place that the film is coming from. Yeah. You would have been pretty young when this film came out, though, right? Oh, seven. Yeah. Yep. The next movie is another movie I was really fucking looking forward to watching. This has been on my want-to-watch list for a long time. Uh, sorry, real quick. Uh, I just want to interject. Ben Kingsley's real name, Krishna Pandit Banji. Oh, wow. Yeah, I know. So I wonder why he chose Ben Kingsley. <laughs> like, specifically that name? I would have to... This is my assumption. 
is it, uh, most likely if that's his name, then his father is the one that is of Indian descent. So yeah. maybe Kingsley is his mother's maiden name. That would be that would be my guess. Well, you're certainly correct about his father being the one who's of Indian descent. Yeah. Um, his mother, Anna Lena Marie, nay Goodman. Okay, so no idea. All right. Um, the next movie is a movie I have been really wanting to watch for a long time. I keep almost pressing play uh, on it. On It's on Amazon. Uh, it's by one of my favorite filmmakers, Michael Mann. Uh, and this is his very first movie, Thief. Cool. Uh, it stars James Caan, uh, Tuesday Weld, and Willie Nelson. No way. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. Um, an ace safe an ace safe cracker wants to do one last big heist for the mob before going straight. This movie within five minutes, you're like, Oh, I'm watching a Michael Mann film. It's fucking gorgeous. There's this, the opening scene of him and his crew breaking into a safe. There's these shots outside in the rain that are fucking incredible. And I was just like, Oh, why'd I wait so long to watch this? Sam, if I had watched this prior to our In Memoriam, this James Conn performance would have made my list. He's fucking awesome in it. This is, uh, it's a 1981 film. So he is very much a guy's guy. Now, again, it's 81. There's some stuff in here hasn't aged well. In fact, there's some stuff in here that's aged really badly Hmm. there's some definitely racism stuff there is some serious misogyny definitely the way he treats his girlfriend who he says he loves not so great but the main part of the film is him doing this one last job for the mob because he wants to go straight and this isn't (laughs) the standard this is the last job one more job and then I'm out this is what his whole thing is about. This is his last job. And he doesn't take shit at all. He doesn't, t- he doesn't even take shit from the mob. He, when the mob approaches him for this, he basically almost tells them to go fuck themselves. Like, what the fuck can you do for me? Like, I'm doing just fucking fine on my own. Why the fuck do I need you? And you're like, what the fuck? <laughs> it's really fucking good. I had a great time watching this movie. You can definitely see the glimpses of a lot of the things that Michael Mann does. There's a lot of stuff in here that you see later in Heat. There's a lot of stuff you see here later in Collateral. It is a really great first movie. And again, taking it for its time in 1981, this is a thoroughly enjoyable movie. Again, with some stuff. There's an a character actor. I don't you you would know him. His name's Robert Prosky. He plays the 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 head of the TV station that Robin Williams is trying to get on in Mrs. Doubtfire. The guy at the, in the oh damn yeah okay okay think of that guy two shoutouts for Mrs. Doubtfire yeah today. think okay think of that guy got him in your head yeah kind of I he's think. a super fucking evil kick ass mobster in this movie like, really like fucking badass. And it's so funny because I'm used to Robert Prosky being kind of like a very happy, cheerful old oh, man. that dude. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. He yeah. is 
a fucking badass in this movie. And it's really weird to see, but fucking awesome. Uh, he's he is my second favorite performance. Like James Conn's number one. He is a close second. Um, there was a very young James Belushi in this movie. I couldn't, it took me a, a second to realize, oh my God, that's Jim Belushi. Uh, and then Willie Nelson, he is in this movie. He's only got like two or three scenes. Uh, but at first when I saw and Willie Nelson, I'm like, it can't be that Willie Nelson. Nope, it is. Willie Nelson. 100% it is. Willie Nelson's still alive? Yes. I think he is, yeah. Yeah. Uh, this movie's really great. If you are looking for a good, like, action crime drama, if you liked Heat, you're going to like this movie. If you, if you like Collateral, you're going to like this movie. If you like any type of action thriller heist movie, you're going to like this movie. Uh, it's a four to five for me. Yeah, awesome. I like the recommendation. Of course, Michael Mann, we've talked about many times on the show. Heat, we talked about many times on the yep. show, including a whole episode uh, devoted to it. Mm-hmm. That's one that I think I'm going to have to continue to revisit. Every now and again, Heat pops back into my head, and I go, like, I get really close to rewatching Heat a lot. Because in my head, whenever I think of Heat, I just think of the diner scene, but there's yeah. so much more to that movie than just the diner scene. Yeah. It's, it's such a big, sprawling movie. It's like three hours long. Um, Oh, you know, you know, it's a, a term that I heard this week that I want to share with you. And yes, I think please. you're going to like this. Um, a, a YouTuber that I watch would refer to Heat, as well as many other movies. He'd refer to them as not films, but kilns, because they, uh, they're films containing Val Kilmer. It's one of his favorite kilns. <laughs> Heat. Oh, where would. Well, Heat would be my top five kilns. It might be my number one. Again, it comes back to kind of the age-old debate of, like, what is a Kilm? What's a Val Kilmer movie? Is it a movie that he's in, or is it, like, the movie that you like him best in? Because... Okay, if it's a movie I like him best in, then it's not number one. I know you didn't really like The Doors other than his performance. His performance is great, but I didn't like the movie. No, mm-hmm. my number one Val Kilmer Oh, it's got to be, yeah, I'll be a Huckleberry. Yeah, it's, it's Tombstone. <laughs> so, for me personally, if we're... If we're well, Quick side tangent, if we're talking about Val Kilmer films, I would say for me to qualify it, he has to be the lead or a major supporting character. Like a movie that I love that Val Kilmer's in is Top Gun Maverick. That is not a kiln. No. No. He has one fucking scene. Mm-hmm. So not a kiln. Got it. Okay. <laughs> All right. It's good we got that defined. Next movie I want to talk about is brand new for this year. Again, this year we're in May. And I don't even think I've watched 10 movies of 2023 yet. Yeah, I don't know how many I've watched. It's certainly not 10. Yeah. So, but the summer movie season is about to begin. Some of the early films from 2023 will start to hit streamers soon. So I'm sure my number will increase. But the movie I went and saw in the movie theater is Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. Oh, cool. Yeah, I haven't seen it yet. Uh, Still reeling from the loss of Gamora, Peter Quill rallies his team to defend the universe and one of their own, a mission that could mean the end of the Guardians, if not successful. Obviously, I'm not going to spoil very much as my co-host has not seen this movie yet. No, sir. What I will say is this. The MCU has been on a bit of a tough streak lately. This is a return to form. Thank God. 
if you liked any of the Guardians movies, you are going to love this movie. Heads up. If you are someone that cries easily, bring some tissue. This movie is very emotional and all in good ways. Everybody that you love in the Guardians knows exactly the role they play and they play it to perfection. This movie, I went and saw this movie with my friend Holly. I made a prediction. I won't reveal what it is because I don't want to spoil anything. But I was, I'm not even going to lie, I was 100% sure my prediction would come true, and it did not. Hmm. And I'm glad for it. This movie wasn't what I was expecting it to be. Thankfully, I had avoided all trailers of this movie. I don't know how the fuck As I... have I. I have no idea how I avoided an MCU trailer, but I hadn't been to the movie theater in a while, so it was pretty easy. Um, this movie wasn't what I expected. I had a great fucking time. I'm not... I'm not going to say that the MCU is back because this is James Gunn doing the franchise that he has nurtured and grown on his own. On his own. Air quotes. But mostly, like, he's the one that... Right, so, he's the one in charge. This was his send-off because now, I don't know if you know this, but James Gunn is now running DC. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, he is, he is DC's Kevin Feige. That's what he just got hired to do. Oh, shit. Yeah. So, he's gone from the MCU. Uh, this movie is incredibly entertaining and a lot more emotional than any of the other Guardians movies. I give it a four out of five. I'm very curious to watch this one. I'm very excited to. I wonder if I can find time this weekend to maybe go. Yeah. Um, by the way, for myself, I've seen three 2023 movies. Three? I've seen three. I th- uh, 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 None of them got above a three. Holy shit, really? Yeah. I've watched three pretty middling films this year including one that i watched with you if you recall what that one was uh oh right ant-man yeah ant-man quantumania okay i'm at eight you're at eight eight and i have any standouts that i should be focusing on guardians of the galaxy yeah (laughs) that's that's spoiler alert it's my current number one film of the year you seen uh john wick yet john wick four no i haven't seen john wick two or three yeah me neither gotta catch up um i would maybe recommend you do you have apple plus yes tetris is worth checking out yeah emma and i have plans to to check out tetris at one point cool uh i it's totally enjoyable i had like a really great time flat out right now i was bored i actually got a little ahead on some of my sample planning Hmm. uh tetris will not be in any in any category yeah but i gave tetris a four because i had a, a completely Fun time watching that movie. Taron Egerton, 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 I think Egerton, winnable. He's he's just continuing to grow on me as an actor. It feels like he's not like a big household name for like young guys. Yeah, but he should be. Yeah, especially after Rocket Man. Yes, yes, I agree. Rocket Man was exceptional. Yeah, and Kingsman. And Kingsman. I haven't seen the sequels. Me neither. I've heard they're bad. Okay, good. I'm happy to avoid them. Okay, Guardians of the Galaxy four. Mm -hmm. Two more movies to go. So, I'm going to end... Oh, yes, sir. 
Uh, I was just going to ask you what else you watched because I have Tootsie and Guardians, but uh, it was Thief. Uh, Thief. Yeah. Thief. Yeah. Um, so I want to talk about this movie. I'm going to kind of spoil it because I doubt you're going to watch it, and I doubt anybody listening is going to watch it. Cool. Uh, it's this movie called Alice. A spoiled Manhattan housewife reevaluates her life after visiting a Chinatown healer. That description does not begin to describe the movie that I watched. Only shortly before I watched this did I even know this must have been up for an Oscar. Yeah, okay. So it was nominated for... Oh, Best Screenplay. Of course it was. Fuck. Because it's a Woody Allen film. Ah, didn't know it was a Woody Allen film until shortly before I started because I think when I went to watch it, obviously his name comes up. And I was like, oh, shit. I'm going to kind of – I'm not going to really spoil the movie because this description doesn't tell you what the movie's about. I know we've talked about this before, but just maybe really brief. How do you, how do you feel about Woody Allen as a, as a creator, as, I, a, as, a, uh, as an artist? I don't have a lot of experience with his films. So I've always found – Okay. Obviously, maybe some people don't know. Overall good guy, Woody Allen. Thank you. <laughs> Piece of shit. Yeah. Is the translation for that. Yes. Piece of, tr- piece of shit, for sure. Prior to him being a piece of shit. Prior to him... Prior to it being known yes. that he was a piece of shit. Yes. I always found him annoying. <laughs> Just him. Yeah. Not his movies. I don't have a lot of experience with his filmography. So I'm very... I've been looking forward to watching his films to try to understand the love and adoration this man gets in the film community. Um, I did watch uh, one of his Oscar-nominated films, Bullets Over Broadway, for one of our years. It was completely entertaining. There was an Oscar-winning performance in it from Diane Weist that I thought was worthy. She was really good in it. Uh, It was definitely an entertaining film. This movie, <laughs> this movie's premise is fucking spectacular. That plot description does not tell you what this movie's about. What I'm about to tell you, I'm going to spoil a lot of this movie. If you want to end up, che- if you end up wanting to check it out, I no, no, I can't recommend it because there's probably other movies in 1990 that I think you would enjoy more. You would enjoy this movie for watching it and seeing the potential of another great film that was light, that was squandered. This movie is about a Manhattan socialite. She's completely spoiled. She's in a 17-year marriage where she's not really happy. She's complaining about her back pain, so she goes to see this Chinese doctor in Chinatown, and he gives her a herb. Is it a herb the first time? Or, or something to put in her drink. And it gives her superpowers. The first superpower she gets is this ultra-confidence and incredible knowledge. So when she goes to her school to pick up her kid, who I can't even remember if she has a son or a daughter, she starts flirting with this other father there who is a jazz musician. Shocker, because it's fucking Woody Allen who is obsessed with jazz. I'm sorry, I just broke your heart. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I saw you just take the biggest breath. You're yeah, like, God. no. <laughs> That's unfortunate. The scene is unbelievable because she is 
this is Sissy Spacek. Oh, sorry, no, Mia Farrow. Mia Farrow. Um, she's very. She's basically playing the female version of Woody Allen, and it's one of the reasons. Heads up, I gave this movie a three. Any other type of performance, easy four, but she's basically a a, a female Woody Allen, and it annoyed the fuck out of me, constantly. In this scene, she becomes so fucking confident and knows so much about jazz. She's sexy as fuck Hmm. as she somewhat basically seduces this guy and tells him, we're going to get together and we're going to fuck later without saying it. And you can see, and it's uh, Joe Montana, Mm -hmm. um, the dad from Searching for Bobby Fisher. Mm -hmm. He's just like, what is going (laughs) on? He's like so blown away. So when they end up meeting for coffee the next day, that power has worn off. She's no longer that person. And so they sit down for coffee, and she's like mousy again. He's like, where's the woman I met yesterday? She goes back to the the doctor again. He gives her – she explains that she wishes she could know this guy better, but she doesn't know if she wants to see him. So he gives her another drink that turns her invisible. So she follows this guy while she's invisible – a bunch of other things happen. The premise of this movie is awesome. It's all about this woman who gets these superpowers and learns to discover herself and what she truly wants in life. That's what the movie's about. But it's this fun kind of comedy way because she gets these superpowers and uses them not to save the world or do anything, but basically to discover who she is. It was a really cool and interesting premise that just didn't reach the potential it could have. The screenplay nomination I get because there are some really great writing. There is, again, it's 1990. There are some scenes. Spoiler alert. She tells Joe Montana about the power she has, and he obviously doesn't believe her because there's no other aspect of this movie. The rest of this movie is set in 100% realism. Just these Chinese herbs give you superpowers. So she makes him take the invisibility drink. And... She takes him into this store because she sees two of her best friends, so she wants to go eavesdrop and listen to them talk. He goes in and watches a model get changed. Yeah. Yeah. So it's some stuff like that. Um, I wish I could recommend it because I think it's such an incredible premise that I think deserves to be revisited. But I gave Alice a three. Uh, easy four if Mia Farrow wasn't literally playing Woody Allen because he, he's annoying and she is as well. Um, but yeah, I had a way better time than I was anticipating. Yeah. I've, I have very little experience with Woody Allen films. Um, I've heard nothing but good things about Annie Hall. Same. And um, I'm looking for, I keep wanting to press play on it. As I well. do still want to watch it. Um, I recently watched midnight in Paris. One of his uh, starring uh, Owen Wilson. Thank you. I've heard that was good. I, no, I mean, okay. Owen Wilson is Woody Allen. He's <sighs> he's he's playing Woody Allen, <laughs> so he's just kind of annoying and a, like a little bit pretentious and neurotic. Yeah, neurotic. Uh. thinks he, thinks he's better than everyone because he likes French literature from a particular period. And it it has again interesting concept. I just don't like the delivery or I don't like uh, how it was delivered upon. It's about a guy who 
uh, is in Paris with his wife, I think. I'm trying to remember this. He's in Paris with his wife, and he's not having a very good time at all. She just wants to, you know, do all the sightseeing stuff, and he just kind of wants to stay in his hotel room and read. And he discovers, again, it has one fantastical element that he that he rolls with. He discovers, I think, a like a like a coach, like I'm I'm thinking like an old timey car, like. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the word would be, but it was like a 1920s or 1930s automobile sort of thing. At midnight, shows up, takes him from his hotel room into the Paris of old that he respects so much with all these uh, thinkers and writers that he respects. And he gets to just hang out in a bar with them and have conversations. See, that's a cool premise. It's a cool premise. But Woody Allen writes the main character to be himself as just like the smartest guy in the room. And I'm I'm really so much better than everyone else because I like this one specific era of French poetry and... uh, you know, it just comes off as so fucking pretentious. Oh, fuck. Yeah, See, I that ga- premise I, is incredible. I gave it a three. It was a cool concept. I just didn't like the execution. Oh. So, Woody Allen. Okay. The guy does volume. I'll give him that. Yeah, he works a lot. Works a lot. Not anymore. Writes a lot. No, yeah, not a lot. Not yeah. a lot anymore. But, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm, I, I'll i probably end up watching that because that, that premise just sounds fucking cool. It's cool. I gave it a three. It's fine. It's visually pretty cool. And Owen Wilson does do a pretty good job of the performance. But the character, the character is Woody Allen. Okay. <laughs> Prepare yourself for that. <laughs> the last movie I want to talk about is a movie that came out of nowhere. So I have Tootsie four stars, Thief four stars, Guardians four stars, Alice three. Correct. Okay. All right. The last movie I want to talk about is a movie I'd never heard of. A movie that I it was on. I just added into my 1990s watch list because it was in a movie in 1990 and had an actor that I fucking love. That movie is the action crime thriller Narrow Margin, starring Gene Hackman, mm. Ann Archer, and some bunch of other people I don't fucking know. A Los Angeles deputy district attorney is sent to protect a woman who accidentally witnessed a mafia murder. Doesn't quite fully explain why this movie's so good. So I'm not going to spoil... Mm. No, not really going to spoil anything. Gene Hackman plays a deputy Los Angeles district attorney. So he's not a cop. He's a district attorney, deputy district attorney. This woman witnesses a murder by a, that is done by a mafia boss. The mafia boss isn't the one that pulls the trigger, but he's in the room and orders the killing of her blind date. Yes. Holy shit. Yeah, yeah. She goes into hiding. She is tracked down by, uh, by Gene Hackman, who is followed by the mafia hitman. I'm, this is the one little spoiler thing, but it, it really isn't because they're the main characters. They escape her cabin. Oh, by the way, all of this filmed in BC. Cool. They escape her cabin. They make their way onto a train. The rest of the movie is the hitman on the train they know Gene Hackman, but they don't know the woman. They don't know what she looks like. They only know he's there to, to get her, try to get her to L.A. So it's a cat and mouse game of Gene Hackman trying to hide her identity from the two killers on the train that know who he is, but not her. So it's this thriller. They're stuck on this train, and he has to outwit them. That sounds like a pretty interesting premise. It's super fucking good. As I was watching it the whole time, I'm like, I'm having a really good time with this movie. Gene Hackman's not spectacular. It's not like he's pulling off this great performance. He's just 
playing this role. There's no there's no deep backstory on any of these characters on why they do what they do. There's no hidden meanings behind the things. This is just a straight, narrow, narrow, not a pun. Yeah. Straight ahead. Marginally missed that one. Straight ahead. Through, it's 97 minutes. It's got some, it didn't even need to be that long because there is a, the, the chase scene from the cabin to the train longer than it needed to be. <laughs> didn't need to be that long. In fact, when you're watching, you're like, mm, put, uh, whatever, pushes reality a little bit. It's a fucking movie, so whatever. I bought into it. I had a lot of fun because it's him trying to outsmart these guys. It's a, a, it's a passenger train. It's not like a, you know, it's not like a bunch of boxcar trains. So these guys can't just kill him because they still do need to know which one of these other passengers is the woman they're after. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I had a great time with this movie. I'm getting like bullet train vibes from this. Is it similar to bullet train or did you see bullet train? I saw bullet train. No bullet trains. That's action packed. This is not an action movie. Oh, okay. There's a, there's a chase scene Mm -hmm. from the cabin. There's a, there is some action. Uh, And there is one stunt near the end of the movie that. I'll be honest. I don't know how they pulled it off, but it is. This is pre green screen. This is pre CGI. This was done for real on a moving train outside and on the top. And I watched it and I went into the IMDb trivia to see if they mentioned anything about it because the stunt is pretty fucking cool. It's, it's not like Tom Cruise mission impossible incredible it's just like how the fuck did you do that because you're watching those people outside the train and it's moving it's not stationary by the camera is well off probably on a helicopter and you're watching them almost fall off the side of this train and you have no there you can't see anything that stopped them from falling except for his own hand Whoa. I, I loved it. I was just like, fuck yes. Great time. I completely recommend this movie. It's, like I said, it's 97 minutes. It takes no time to watch it. I had a great time. Narrow margin, four out of five. Hmm. Loved it. Four out of five. Yep. We both watched some good movies this week. Yeah. Whole lot of fours for you, whole lot of fives for me. Yep, yep. Which takes us, after we get caught up forever... Already an hour into the episode. Yeah, naturally. Uh, yeah. It's been a while since we had a big, chunky what we've been watching section, though. It was it was due. It I just was due. been watching a lot. It was due. Yeah. All right, let's get into our main review and start our 1990 miniseries with Miller's Crossing. Released October 5th, 1990, directed by, even though they're not both listed as director, I'm listing them. Because it's for political reasons that they're not. So. not. Yeah, it's for guild reasons mm-hmm. prior to them that got fixed, but... This is directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen, written by Joel and Ethan Cohen and Dashiell Hammett, starring Gabriel Byrne, Albert Finney, and John Turturro. Metascore of 66. That's just wrong. Letterbox score of 3.9. That is right. No Oscar, no Oscar nominations. That's just fucking wrong. Had a budget of $14 million. Grossed a whopping $5 million, making it the... 122nd best film 
box office wise in 1990. Way to go, guys. Close the double digits. The plot. Tom Regan, an advisor to a Prohibition era crime boss, tries to keep the peace between warring mobs, but gets caught in divided loyalties. As always, with films that Sam has not seen, he allowed us the pleasure of hearing what he thought <laughs> Miller's Crossing was about. Let's hear what past Sam had to say about Miller's Crossing. Oh, no. Um, but as per tradition, we get Sam trying to guess the plot of Miller's Crossing. Sam? What is Miller's Crossing about? Okay, so I legitimately know nothing about this film other than it is the Coens. I don't even know who's in it. Oh. Yeah, so um, I assume John Goodman appears at some point because it's the Coens. <laughs> Maybe Francis McDormand. I don't know. Um, yeah. Miller's Crossing. Well, knowing the Coens, it probably is a black comedy about a mundane, somebody in a mundane profession. Um Let's say, because it's Miller's Crossing, it's about a crossing guard. <laughs> okay. It's about somebody in a in a mundane profession like a crossing guard who uh, witnesses a murder Ooh. and uh, needs to go uh, needs to go on the lam uh, to uh, to avoid being caught. Oh, yeah. So, um, in general, I think safe guess with Cohen movies is somebody in kind of a mundane line of work or who lives a mundane life or who lives in a mundane city uh, has something extraordinary and criminal happen around them and hijinks ensues. And I think the backdrop for that is, uh, is that a crosswalk Okay, called Miller's Crossing. Excellent. So that's, that's the plot. Excellent. I look for... Sammy. A little off. Yeah, I'll take I'll take the L on that one. Uh, there there are certain aspects of that which uh, which proved to be correct, but uh, what the, the Francis McDormand? Yeah, that's maybe maybe the one <laughs> aspect. Uh, yeah. So while I was incorrect about all that, uh, Cohen's, if you're listening, I think that's a, a solid pitch for a film right there. Crossing guard witnesses uh, witnesses a murder and has to go on the lam. Tell me that doesn't sound like one of your movies because it absolutely does. Um, yeah. So we we got it wrong, but you know. That's it's okay. That's we the nature of the beast. We don't do this to uh, to embarrass you or anything like that. It's just a fu- it's just a fun just little a game. game. It is a game. So now that you have seen the movie, Sam, what are your spoiler free thoughts on Miller's Crossing? Yeah. So this, uh, even though it's early on in their career, I think we established it's like their third, third film, film. Uh, Raising Arizona's before this. And what was their first one? Blood Simple. Blood Simple. Blood Simple and Raising Arizona coming before this. This is uh, this is the earliest one that I've seen of theirs, and it is certainly. It certainly still has all the calling cards of a typical Coen's movie. Um, I kind of alluded to a few of these when I was talking about Inside Lewin Davis earlier, but I intentionally kept discussion on that film a little bit short to not repeat myself. Um, but you have uh, an insanely intricate plot in this one. Uh, oh. This is this is a very intricate uh, crime thriller, uh, which I really liked from them. That's not always the case that they have a plot this intricate, but... Um, you know, I definitely got echoes of uh, Fargo or No Country for Old Men in yep. this one. Certainly, you can see the influences there. Um, or rather, you can see their their fingerprints on all of those movies. Um, you have zany side characters with with the straight man lead. Uh, Gabriel Byrne's character is certainly certainly the straight man of the bunch. He's the, um, I don't want to say least interesting because it, it sounds like a negative thing. He's just 
not the crazy one. He's not the not the funny one. Um, but then we get the zippy dialogue all around, much of which is very repetitive. Mm-hmm. The Coens get a lot of mileage out of just repeating lines for comedic effect. And I don't know why. It just works for me almost ev- almost every time 100%. they do it. Yep. <laughs> like every time somebody in this movie says, uh, uh, how do they say what's up? What's the phrase they use? Oh. What's the what's the something? Uh, hey, Tom, what's the rumpus? What's the rumpus? Yeah. What's the, is for some reason just a really funny line. Or... I might start stealing that. Also, one of them says, uh, I'm sick of the hi-hat yeah. a lot. And a lot of this stuff is this very old-timey, stylistic dialogue, but you can kind of guess what it means from context. Yep. And that's just really good creative writing um, where you can stylize it, you can make it interesting, you can uh, allow it to bring people in, but it still, uh, you know, still means something and doesn't, doesn't turn people off and mm-hmm. doesn't, uh, it's not a... It's not a barrier to entry, so to speak. So this very much has the calling cards of the Coens all over it. It's an intricate, crazy plot. Tommy, the character Tommy, is a son of a bitch. He is a really interesting character for the Coens. Always has an angle, as they put it. Is always... uh, What I like about him in this film is he's always thinking on his feet, and we, the audience, get to see him fabricate lies on the spot. It's something that he's so good at, and he's so good at playing people, and you can't help but really like him for that. He, I would go so far as to classify him as an anti-hero because he really is just a terrible person. Yep. He's really a terrible person. That doesn't make the movie or the writing bad or anything. It's just a particular style of protagonist that you have. Um, but yeah, always yeah, telling he's, lies. He's not a good guy. No, but he's he a good just, character. He's a great character. Yeah. He just <laughs> happens to be the protagonist of this film, but he's not a good guy. Yeah. And yeah, there's there's just many times in the film where he's he's working an angle, and one of the real treats of it is getting to see. I guess it's it's partially in Gabriel Byrne's performance of this, getting him, getting to see him work his way out of a situation while maintaining his composure. Mm-hmm. Um, and you don't, you'll see maybe one shot, one little flicker of the eyes where he has to think of what to do for a second, and then he's just right back into his smooth talking character, talking his way out of a situation. The side characters in the film, holy shit, I'm going to talk about John Turturro real quick. Maybe the best performance I've seen from him. Uh, I love the John Turturro performance in this film. Nice. And he has like three or four excellent scenes. Really, uh, I'm going to try not to overuse the word zany <laughs> in, in this review, but that's really what it is. Um, he was a real treat for me. And then, I mean, you have a whole laundry list of people, but uh, Steve Buscemi in a small part is obviously great. Very talented actor. Um, John Polito, who I'm not familiar with as uh, Casper, yep. uh, has so much to do. Arguably may even have more lines than Gabriel Byrne, it feels like. It's possible. I'm, I'm sure that's probably not true. That's what it feels like, even. He's a very talky role. John Polito really captures the screen when he's on, yeah, on there. Yeah, just a ton of charisma. Yeah. ton of charisma. He's... I can't really decide how I feel about him as a mob boss. Like, Same. Uh, he's not... He's not inept, which is often the case with Cohen characters, and he's not like a mastermind either. He's somewhere, somewhere in the middle. Yeah, I guess he's certainly second fiddle to Leo. He has he has his strengths and his weaknesses. Yeah, and he's a, he's a very interesting, uh, very very talkative character and very yep. stylized character. So, um, right from the beginning in the Cohen's filmography, they do such a good job of giving depth to these side characters and giving depth to this world. By the way, we never figure out what city we're in. Never, never find out what city we're in. But uh, we construct such an interesting 
landscape and interesting bit of politics nonetheless. So um, this was a hit for me. This uh, this absolutely worked. Wicked. While I did not manage to guess the, the plot correctly, this felt like a really strong entry. Um, and, you know, having only heard that Raising Arizona is a masterpiece too, I now feel like I just have to go back, watch Raising Arizona, watch Blood Simple, and just get the beginning of this filmography out of the gate. Yeah, I haven't seen Blood Simple yet, so I think I'm probably going to knock it off pretty quick here mm-hmm. um, to get caught up because I think what I want to do is I'm going to do – I want to get caught up because after we do 1990, for those of you listening, we'll be jumping ahead to 1997 to kind of revisit some years that we only kind of touched on. So I'm going to – I want to get – since going forward we're going to be doing Coens, I want to get caught up from 1990, pre-1990, and then – all pre-1997 Cohen films. So going forward, uh, I will be able to knock off their entire filmography. Yeah, so uh, I don't know if I really gave this spiel off the top, but uh, we, this is the beginning of our 1990 miniseries. It's part one. We're going to be doing 15 parts in yeah. our miniseries, 14 movies and a review. Uh, longest miniseries to date, six guests lined up. We're going to be in it for a long time. We are going to be doing all the Cohen movies as we encounter them yep. in the years as we go past. So this is the Cohen entry for 1990, obviously. Um I really like, I, I'm, I'm trying to look at all the films I've seen of theirs. I, I don't know if I've seen a film of theirs that I've given less than a four. Really? Yeah. Um, I'm just going to go through real quick. Fargo 5, Big Lebowski 4, Brother Where Out Thou 4, No Country 5, Serious Man, been a while, but probably a four. Uh, Inside Lewin Davis, obviously, the aforementioned five. Ballad of Buster Scruggs is probably my least favorite of the bunch. I can't remember if I gave it a three or a four, but still a solid movie. Just not quite as strong an entry. Um, a Serious Man, by the way, super underrated uh, film in their, in their filmography. I don't know if it's right to call any of these uh, underrated. but um, So generally speaking, uh, the Coens are some of my favorite filmmakers out there today. Um, you, you haven't seen Old Brother? We're out there? I have. Yeah, okay. I, I said... Uh, Just not logged. Up. Give that. Oh, I gave it a four. Oh, okay. Yep. Uh, I'm a big fan of the Soggy Bottom Boys. <laughs> that That's a movie with some great dialogue. We thought you was a toad. <laughs> um, real quick, maybe your experience with the Coens and your general opinion of them and any connection you may have. I or always... May not have. Okay. Uh, I always felt that they were filmmakers that were overrated Hmm. until I started to really dive into the movies that got them that initial acclaim because a lot of the movies of theirs I watched were their later entries, which aren't very strong. So I need, I'll just need to double check some of their films. Um, Movies like I still enjoy them. But let's take a look here. Uh, so movies like, oh, like The Lady Killers is one of the all-time worst movies I've ever seen. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, I do want to rewatch it again. Um, sadly, Intolerable Cruelty, not good. And that hurt my heart because uh, it's George Clooney and Catherine Zeta-Jones. Uh, I am not a big Lebowski fan. Uh, I don't, I don't get it. It's gotten better every time I've watched it. I've probably seen it three or four times. It was probably a three the first time I watched it. Uh, that's a 98. So we'll be 100% reviewing that movie. I still don't really get it. Like I get the movie. I just don't get 
the whole thing about yeah. the Big Lebowski. But it's a solid, solid comedy. I'm pretty sure it's in charge top twenty. Yeah, like that, not, I just don't get that. Yeah, so he'll he'll be coming on. I would love to watch the movie with him to see where he's getting the enjoyment from, because I don't get it. Mm-hmm. Um, I did not like Barton Fink. Yeah, you gave it a two. Did I give it a two? You did. I remember yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, I think it's because Barton Fink was too annoying for me. Like The character? The character. Hmm. John Goodman's in it. Spectacular. Yeah. Fuck yeah. Um, yeah, so... Oh, I also didn't really enjoy the tragedy of Macbeth. But that's a Shakespeare thing, not a Cohen thing. Yeah, I didn't see that. Um, I just... So going back to these movies that got them their acclaim, I've always loved Raising Arizona. I'm pretty sure I saw it in the late 80s, early 90s. Absolutely loved it. Miller's Crossing and then like Fargo, I appreciate the filmmaking talent, but it just doesn't connect with me. Um, But to come back to uh, Miller's Crossing absolutely fucking love this movie mind-blowingly good i am actually kind of in awe on why this movie isn't more revered than it should be i think this is an absolutely underappreciated gem of a film that i want more people to watch uh if that spoils what i'm going to be saying later on (laughs) don't give a fuck so be it yeah, uh, I was pretty sure. Um, I said last week that I was pretty sure I remembered your opinion. Yeah, I was pretty sure I remember hearing that because I, it was it alarmed me. I mean, yes. not alarmed, but it. I took note of it. Yes, uh, it was very notable. And, yes, uh, yeah. So now I'm pretty much confirmed on that. Yeah, not, it's not a surprise. It's confirmed. I'll still keep it a somewhat of a mystery <laughs> until the end, just to keep up with uh, podcast traditions. I think everyone in this movie is not quite at Oscar level, but there are a few that are. There's a couple people that I think are, um, which when we get to our year in review, I wouldn't be surprised if a couple people sneak into some categories. I think numerous aspects of this film are award-worthy. This getting zero Oscar nominations hurts my heart. Um Sc- no screenplay nomination? Like, what's that about? That's... That's a fucking... I can tell you right now. I need to just double check because uh, I was just talking about Alice getting a screenplay nomination. Oh, yeah. So I need to see if Alice... Nope, Alice is... Okay, so Alice is written directly for the screen. The same as this movie. Get Alice out of there? Yeah, Alice can fuck right off. Don't get me wrong. Alice is not poorly written. I, I like the Alice nomination. But not at the expense of Miller's Crossing. Not a fucking chance. This movie's screenplay is unbelievable. I love everything about this screenplay. I love everything about this movie. This movie is one I will watch probably fairly consistently. I I fucking love this movie. Wow. Absolutely love this movie. So why don't we get into it? That's great. Notable scenes. As always, Sam, where are you going to start Are we giving off? a spoiler alert or not? Nah? Oh, yeah. Fuck it. Let's spoil <laughs> the fuck out of this movie. Three, two, one. Go fuck yourself. There it is. Sam. 
What scene do you want to start with? Uh, yeah, where do we want to go? Let's go with... I'm sure we'll have some overlap. I'm going to go with my most obscure one first, the one that I, I think is least likely to be on your list. Cool. Um, Steve Buscemi's introduction as Mink. Definitely not on my list. I loved this scene. <laughs> it's only like a minute, but Steve Buscemi's dialogue is so fucking rapid fire. He's like cocaine personified. Uh, it's a combination of the witty Cohen dialogue. It's the way that not only does it flow out of his mouth, uh, but it also gives you such great exposition on the film and who these characters are, introducing uh, the fact that this Dane character might be uh, a problem later on if their secret comes out. Uh, but Steve Buscemi, in such a, a small performance, I'm so glad that he would go on after this to have a very successful career, because I can only imagine seeing this guy in 1990 and being like, who the hell was that? That was awesome. I like it. Nice yeah. pick. Yeah, I just that was uh, one of the most notable things in the in the film to me. It was just this brief little expose on this uh, on on Mink on the Steve Buscemi character. Uh, I wanted more. I wanted more of him. Cool. Uh, I'm gonna circle back to just the opening scene. The opening scene of uh, Casper talking to Leo about wanting to bump off. Uh, the no good uh, Bernie Bomb Bomb. I employed the Manny Manual strategy of uh, not not writing down six scenes, but <laughs> intentionally omitting one that I thought you would probably pick. This this was that scene that I omitted. So are we just going <laughs> to refer to that as the Manny Maneuver? The Manny Maneuver. I like that. Okay. The Maneuver. <laughs> uh, the opening scene I think is great. The opening scene, the first time I watched this movie, just completely captivated me. And I think it was right then I'm like, Oh, this is gonna be good. We learn who we learn who Casper is and what he wants. We learn how powerful Leo is, and most importantly, we learn what Tommy is and how incredibly fucking intelligent and savvy he is at the job he is. He's basically to steal from another mafia film that we both enjoy. He's the consigliere. Yeah, he's Tom. Yeah. Well, he, he is. <laughs> He's literally Tom. Um, and it's funny that you mentioned The Godfather because I couldn't figure out why this scene felt so familiar. But this is basically the opening scene to The Godfather yeah. as well. <laughs> you get a bald man uh, groveling to uh, to the most powerful mob boss in the city. Yeah. <laughs> just, yeah, it felt felt very familiar. But yeah, this is, a, this is an excellent scene. Of course it is. I absolutely love it. Uh, Albert Finney, I'm, well, I'm not sure if you recognize him or not, but he... Was the uh, the head lawyer in Aaron Brockovich a movie that you enjoyed? Oh yeah, of course, right on. Yeah, uh, I, Albert Finney is excellent in this movie. Uh, I I just love this. I love this opening scene. We get to know basically the four, well, four of the main players: uh, Casper, the Dane, Tommy, and Leo. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, my pick. That's that's an excellent pick. Awesome. Uh, where am I gonna go next? Let's go to. Uh, Casper making Tommy his offer. Uh, in the warehouse. In the warehouse. I have that one. <laughs> You're goddamn right to have that one. Oh, man. By the way, we get... Um, I, I don't know the actor's name. I just have him referred to as mental in my uh, in my notes. The character who he hits in the face with the chair. Oh, that's uh, Mike Starr. Mike Starr? Oh, oh, is that his name from Dumb and Dumber? It is, yeah. Shit. <laughs> it certainly is. <sighs> but, again, this... Uh, even though this did not come up, I don't think this is listed as a comedy anywhere, right? 
not on IMDb or anything. Crime drama thriller. Crime drama thriller, yeah. Even though it's not listed as a comedy, as is often the case with Cohen movies, this is a fucking funny movie. This is like, and I, I can't even really explain it. I, the only explanation I can give for why the screenplay maybe wasn't nominated is a lot of the comedy just has to really come through in the direction because something like him hitting uh, Mike Starr in the face with a chair and his reaction just to hold his face and go, ah, Jesus, Tom. <laughs> so I, I can't sit here and explain to you why that's so funny, but it's just, it's a combination of the delivery and the way it's shot and the juxtaposition of what you expect to happen. I don't know. I can't explain it, but it just, it tickled me. Um, but even before that, the, uh, the offer and uh, Tom saying he needs to think it over and not being intimidated um, by uh, Casper, not being intimidated by Casper. Tom just proves himself to be cool as a cucumber in this scene. And uh, that's some, some uh, it's a, a trait of his that I really come to respect. And I think the audience really comes to respect is how Tom just totally maintains his composure under pressure. Yep. There's only one moment where you see him get worried even i think like you see him react to things but there's only one moment in the film or maybe a couple moments in the film where you see him get worried the rest of the time he's just he's just improvising and figuring it out it's very very smooth and good performance by gabriel Byrne. i'm with you uh i love i i i'm 100 with you i love how cool and collected he is in this scene mm -hmm. i love that he is playing all the angles and that he knows what needs to be done. And he is uh, so calculating and knows exactly what needs to be done when he's left alone with Frankie. I, I don't know what it is. It's little touches, like Frankie taking off his jacket <laughs> to go beat him up. Like, why is that funny? I, I don't know why it's funny, but it is. It is funny. It's the way it's shot. Like we're seeing it. It's not even. It's not even Tommy's POV because it's from. It's from Tommy's feet because mm -hmm. we're looking up and far away at Frankie doing it. It's just. And it's a wide angle lens, yep. so uh, so the character looks really small in yeah. this giant warehouse. Yeah, it's brilliant filmmaking. But yeah, him taking off the jacket is funny, and then when he gets close. That's when he hits him with the fucking chair. You're like, brilliant. Yeah. And then Frankie's Frankie's hurt, like physically. He's, but he's hurt also, emotionally. He's hurt emotionally. Ah, Jesus, Tom. Yeah. <laughs> he calls him Tom. Yeah, I love it. And then he leaves, and then the little guy comes in and kicks his ass. Yeah. I fucking love it. And then just when he's about to get his ass really kicked, that's when the cops come in. I love this scene. It sets it, – it just – reinforces the type of character that Tommy is and it just reinforces everything about it and is funny. Uh, I think uh, on that note, like when we were talking about the big Lebowski and how just like some people just swear it's one of the funniest movies ever made mm -hmm. and other people don't really get it. I think it's because this is the style of the Coen's humor. They don't often write jokes. Yeah. They don't really write jokes. They just write funny situations with interesting characters and, that can have a tendency to fly under the radar. Even like, even for me watching movies too, like rewatching Inside Lewin Davis, I rediscover air quotes jokes in that movie that I didn't know were there in the first place. Yep, and I think that's the case with. I think that's why their movies feel so rewatchable to me, is there's just like <laughs> there's just all these moments where it's funny for some inexplicable reason, just because mm. the way it's made. Cool. 
Uh, all right, my turn then. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to take uh, the assassination attempt on Leo at his house. Mm. Danny Boy playing over the top of the whole thing. Uh, it starts off as diegetic and then just takes over the scene. Uh, it's a beautiful rendition of that song. It is. Apparently uh, uh, recorded for this movie. Yeah. Because they needed it to line up with the action. Yeah. Um, I love... I love that it's a mistake by the killers that saves Leo's life. Mm-hmm. The uh, the fire downstairs. Um, again, you, I I I don't want to nitpick because it's a movie, and I'm just I no longer want to nitpick little things. But every once in a while, I'll pick them out. But it doesn't not affect my enjoyment of the movie. I just found it interesting that the first sense he gets of the fire is a smell, but he's smoking a cigar. Ah. There's no way he smoked <laughs> over, the, over the smell of his cigar. That's actually very funny. But I don't care. But he does see some of the smoke coming up through the floorboards as well. Uh, and then this scene just turns into, in all honesty, in my opinion, an action masterpiece. Him, I love that he put on his slippers. I fucking love that he put on his slippers. <laughs> Diving under the bed just as they're coming in. Uh, the very violent killing of one of the assassins shooting him in the leg and then the top of the head, which you don't see very often. Don't see the top of the head very often. You don't, but, uh, does it remind you of anything? I'm going to, I'll say something. You'd be like, Holy fuck. The animated scene in kill bill. Animated scene in kill bill. Why can't I think of that? The origin story of Ishii. Oh yeah. Okay. She's under the bed, shoots the guy in the leg. He falls down. She shoots him in the head. Very cool. Yeah. Tarantino stealing from the best. Yep. (laughs) Um, Absolutely love that. I love how incredibly, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Efficient Leo is. He knows the plan to get the other killer. Now he jumps out his window Throws the gun out there, jumps down. I was anticipating he's waiting for him to come out of the building and he's gonna um, ambush him there. But no, he knows that those assassins need to make sure he's dead. So the assassin goes back into the room. Tommy just looking up at the window and sees him and just fucking riddles him with bullets. Mm-hmm. All still while Danny Boy is playing, which obviously can't occur because it's on a record player. <laughs> but it's beautifully scored. We get the drive-by shooting. He kills them. The car crashes, catches fire, and then he pulls out a cigar. It's a beautifully shot scene, perfectly timed with the song. Excellent performance from Albert Finney. Uh, I fucking love this scene. Uh, The funny thing about this scene for me, and it's excellent, of course. I agree with your assessment on everything. funny thing about it for me is that there's a lot of shooting. Like, yes. There's so many rounds fired. Yes. It, like an unbelievable amount of rounds shot up. Like when he shoots the guy in the window and that guy's gun goes off, <laughs> that's obviously crazy excessive. And then when he's firing into the vehicle, it takes him so many rounds to yes. get... It, it like takes a comically long <clears throat> amount of time to get everybody to die in this scene, in yep. my opinion. Um, which is not apparently super wrong. Apparently Tommy guns actually were quite inaccurate. Yes. Um, and had uh, 
very bad precision problems, but that's a, another story entirely. But what really is the kicker for this scene is the following scene. So we've just witnessed a lot of rounds be fired to kill like five people, I guess, or two Four. upstairs and two okay. in the car. So the, the, the two assassins, yeah. the two in the car, and then his bodyguard. So five yeah. people are dead. Yeah, we've witnessed so many. So four kills from Leo. Yes. Four kills from Leo. And then the following scene, I think it's, I can't remember who it is. One of the characters says, the man is still an artist with a, with a Thompson. Yes. <laughs> Which for some reason is just like one of the funniest lines in the movie because, <laughs> because we've just seen all this horrible marksmanship. Or what looks like horrible marksmanship. And then we get, the man's still an artist with a Thompson. And that line just hits so much different. It's such good screenwriting. It's so unbelievably good. The way that they can accent or add those little accents in. Uh, the, those little pieces of flair. And it's it's so brilliant. Yeah, I don't know. I can't find the can't find the actor's name. Hmm. Oh, maybe Larry. Is Terry? Is, that, is it Terry? Nope, that's not fucking Terry. Oh, yeah, it is. Terry. Terry's the guy. Yeah. Um, played by Lanny Flaherty. That's the guy that says it. Lanny Flaherty. Yeah, the guy okay. with the bad skin. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Got okay. it. Uh, you're up. Uh, Tommy spares Bernie's life. Oh, so in the Mil- forest. Miller's Crossing. Miller's Crossing. Yeah. That's I have that as well. Yeah. Uh, this is where John Turturro really shines. Yeah. This is uh, arguably this should have been the for your consideration moment uh, for John Turturro. Uh, you get Gabriel Byrne walking out ice cold. Great shots of him. Yep. Great. Really, really smart direction to be sure to get the shots of our protagonist here because it, it'd be really easy to just let the camera linger on John Turturro because he's giving such a great performance and has so much to do and so many great lines. But the reason that this scene holds so much weight is because it's coinciding with an internal struggle of our main character. Our protagonist is going through a huge ethical dilemma He's going through a huge dilemma trying to decide whether or not he's going to kill this man um, who is the brother of the woman that he's seeing. And, um, you know, the case that... Uh, sorry, what's the character's name again? I totally forgot. John Totero's character? Bernie Bomb Bomb? Yeah. Uh, the character... Uh, uh, the case that Bernie is making for himself is actually solid. He's like, yeah, okay, I'm the way that I am. I uh, I, I was skimming off the top. I, I'm like, I did some unethical shit, but that's who I am. And do you really think I deserve to die because of it? And he's making some good points, and he's like, we're not like these guys, and he's really making his case super well. Um, it's in the delivery, it's in the lines, it's in the direction. Uh, this whole scene is so fucking tense. And when the gun goes, when the gun went off, I was pretty sure that he didn't fire it into uh, into Bernie. Um, but the shot of the eyes closed, and then just the slow eye opening is, uh, I, I don't know, this scene... Uh, was so tense, mm-hmm. so incredibly tense for me, and a great character moment for for everybody involved, and does a really good job setting up a lot of the conflict that we'll have moving yeah. forward. Uh, I'm with you. Um, I love the line, uh, first shot puts him down, then you put one in his brain. Uh, I love that. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is This might be my favorite moment in cinematography of the movie. Mm. The shots of the trees from down below the shots the shots of tommy walking towards the camera with his hat slightly down where you just see the bottom of his eyes and that steely gaze as he's trying you he, you you don't know what he's re- you know he's wrestling with something 
as you're watching the scene because of the tension, you're thinking that he's wrestling with, oh, fuck, I have to do this. You don't know that he's wrestling with trying to figure out how he can get away with what he's about to do. Mm-hmm. And that's what I love because it's when you watch it the second time, you're like, oh, I see what you're thinking of. John Turturro is absolutely fantastic in the scene. Like you said, his begging for his life is magnificent. The uh, th- the that he doesn't kill him. I remember the first time I watched it, I was just like, "That's oh, just the mistake." Bernie is not someone you can trust. Like you know. That he's not. You've you've basically been saying this whole movie that Bernie should die, and here's your can't chance. be trusted, and he doesn't get you anything. Yep, and you let him go because of your feelings for his sister, mm-hmm. and you're just now doing the exact same mistake that Leo was, and it almost comes back and bites him in the ass. You know what I really like here as well? Uh, kind of playing with the trope. That we get, I think this is a thing that was stolen from, I think, Shakespeare, I want to say, like, Hamlet, of uh, not confirming the kill. Like, the bad guy's not confirming the kill. Yeah. Uh, I feel like this is a really common trope where take him off into the woods and, and finish him, and you kind of let him go. I feel like I've seen that before. Oh, you, you saw it in Gladiator. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's a thing that you see in films all the time. And I really like that the bad guys figure it out. Like, it's the henchman who let him go, and the bad guys, like, and he, he pays consequences for it. Like, yeah. The bad guy goes, wait. My henchman didn't confirm the kill. No, we're going back out there and we're going to take a look for this. And we we do actually go back out to the woods later on. So yeah. that's a nice setup there. Awesome. Uh, I only have one scene left mm-hmm. and it's the ending. So if you have a different one, we could go there. Uh, yeah, I have... I have actually I have two scenes left. Okay. Um, I have the Dane going into Verna's home. Okay. I don't have that. That's a, a, there. a really fun scene and yes, it is. great great moment of acting from the Dane uh, where he convinces one of the guys that is crawling on the ground to... Who's bleeding speak. out. Yeah, he's like, how do I know if I tell you, you won't kill me anyway? He's like, because if you're lying, I won't have the pleasure of coming back to kill you again. <laughs> Which is a great line delivery. Yep. And he tells him and he says, I believe you. Fires one into, it, into his head. Like, ice cold moment from the Dane. Yeah. Dane's <laughs> a great character. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Very, uh, very great presence. And I love that they just make him inhumanly tall (laughs) (laughs) i don't know if that's the actor or if that was uh platforms they were wearing or something like that but i i liked that decision very much and then the next scene that i have i don't think is even the same scene as you i think it i have uh casper killing the dane as well but that's not the scene you're referring to i don't think no no mine is when tommy goes home okay so uh je freeman is six three yeah it's pretty tall yep it's pretty tall um, but it, oh, in, in that scene as well, like it also part when, of the when set, he goes to Verna's. Yeah, when he goes to Verna's. Okay. Also part of the set design, he has to like weave his head around a chandelier. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a light hang. It might not be specifically a chandelier, but there's a light hang from the ceiling, and I think it's because of a the camera angles, b the set design. He has to like he can't even duck under this thing. It's so low. He has to move his head to the side yep. to to get out of the way of it. So they really just want to emphasize how big and tall and scary this guy is inside this woman's home. So I like the, the direction of that very much. Awesome. And then we get uh, Casper killing uh, the Dane. Uh, 
which is a very tense scene when Dane has his hands around Tommy's neck. Yeah. That shot lingers for a long time. I mean, we do kind of cut between the Dane and Tommy. We kind of cut back and forth between their faces, and we don't cut to Casper at all until uh, he makes the decision to trust the liar that is Tommy. Why is it that Tommy's not fighting back against the Dane when he's being strangled? Like, he doesn't seem to be resisting the strangulation that much. Yeah, I'm not too sure, honestly. I guess because from his perspective, he can see Casper. There's no way he can see Casper. No? No, because if I'm... Sorry for the audio podcast. If I'm Tommy, the Dane is strangling me here. Mm -hmm. Casper's behind the Dane. So you, he could not see Casper until Casper comes up to the side. Mm. And I would assume that Casper coming up to the side isn't a slow thing. Yeah. He probably grabs, or he's, he's, I think he's holding that fireplace shovel, that's what he has, mm -hmm. in his hand. And then he makes a decision, just walks straight up and does it. So that's my interpretation of the scene. Yeah, but I've, it's possible. In my mind, I can't remember... Tommy struggling against the strangulation. I guess uh, I, I really don't know. I really don't have a good explanation doesn't for it. doesn't matter. I don't, I don't need it. It doesn't affect my enjoyment I of the I don't film. have a good in-universe reason for it. The creative reason for it might just be that it breaks the illusion of Tommy being the cool as a cucumber character. You know, that's that's my best filmmaking reason why it's you might fine by me. have that. Um, also, the, the Dane is massive and yeah. could be completely strong. It's also possible that the way he's fighting back is maybe... I don't think we actually see the hands on the neck. I don't think we have that in frame. Uh, so it's possible that maybe out of frame, Tommy is trying to pry the hands off of his neck. I don't know. I'm going to fucking look it up while you go. <laughs> okay. Um, but yeah, John Polito has a, a great performance in the scene as well, having the blood smeared all over his face, and uh, again uses that the, that classic... Cohen's technique of repeating the dialogue from earlier in the movie where he says, always put one in the brain. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it's a very tense, very bloody, very violent scene with a nice, uh, nice bit of cruel irony for, uh, Casper there as he, as he makes the decision to fully trust Tommy instead of his consigliere and chooses wrong, essentially. I have it on mute, so I don't have to worry about. Oh, do you have it pulled up and you're, you're just trying to. Yeah. Oh, no, his hands. His hands are on. There he is. Yeah, he is fighting it. Okay. Yeah, there it is. All right, yeah. In my head, he was just trying to pry the hands off, like just raw yeah. strength versus raw strength. Yeah, it's raw strength versus raw strength. He is, he's, got, he's got a hold of his wrist. Okay, let's see what happens here. Oh, wow, it's right there. Yeah, he definitely cannot see Casper. And then as he's about to lose consciousness, it's even before. Yeah, he, doesn't, he does not see Casper coming. <laughs> Obviously, the Dane doesn't. But neither neither does Tommy. Got it. Fuck that hit to the face is fuck. And then booyaka right there on the back of the head. <laughs> fuck yeah. Okay. Um, we didn't talk enough about John Polito in that scene. No. Um, he's really good in this movie. I don't think we've actually heaped enough praise on him yet. Mm -hmm. uh, I have. You know what? I actually will save that for a performance review. Cool. Never mind then. Uh, and s what's oh those are the two scenes you have those are the two okay so uh, then I'm I'm right near the end not the actual ending but the the climax yep. yeah Tommy coming home we see that Casper's dead uh, killed by Bernie uh, I love how Tommy instantly sees how to make this work like instantly 
sees. Mm-hmm. Gets Bernie to trust him. Kills Bernie. I love that he also to fucking to turn the knife on Bernie because when earlier in the film when Bernie comes back from the dead he when he thinks he has the upper hand and Tommy won't squirm for him he says I want to see you squirm so when Tommy gets the gun from Bernie in the scene he makes him squirm mm-hmm. cuz he's like I can't believe you like why would you want to keep the gun that killed that? And they, oh, kills him. Tommy kills Bernie. Calls Lazar and places a bet. He's <laughs> <laughs> a sick, sick man. Yeah. Uh, it's just a, gr- it just truly shows off how incredible uh, a character and how ahead of the game uh, Tommy is uh, at all of this. John Turturro, uh, you want to split that money 50 50? Uh, maybe I should get a little bit more because I did the <laughs> because I did the killing. You know what? You keep it. I want you to have it. <laughs> yeah. That whole that whole bit of dialogue made me laugh really hard. Awesome. Um, but yeah, I love I love this uh, this final scene, John Turturro's performance, and I think what I didn't quite get in the first two acts of this movie is really where the what the point was going to be, like what the arc was going to be. Um, this feels like a very traditional ending for the Coens. And I don't mean that it's a traditional Coens ending in that sense. I mean that for a Coen Brothers movie, this ends in a pretty... Uh, <laughs> usually their endings are a little more open-ended than this, I guess, yes. I guess I'll say. That's yep. probably the best way for me to say it. But this really feels like the point that they're trying to make is that the arc of this character, Tommy, is that the lesson he has learned is that Giving mercy to bad people is a bad thing. Yep. Giving, showing this Bernie character mercy uh, wound up causing himself and so many other people trouble. So that even though there's nobody alive who needs Bernie dead anymore, there's he doesn't need to kill Bernie to save his own skin anymore. He just he simply wants to kill him. He simply wants Bernie dead, and the. Tommy from the first act wouldn't have killed him. The f- Tommy from the f- from the second act did spare him, as a matter of fact. And now Tommy from the first act wanted him dead. Yeah, but because killing Bernie solves. If they just killed Bernie, well, this movie wouldn't exist. Yeah, that's, and that's very true. But wanting him dead and and want and wanting him dead and killing him yourself are very, very a very large gap for him to traverse. And uh, I think the movie does a good job of convincing us that that gap would have been traversed mm-hmm. from him sparing this pathetic begging, pleading man on his knees, knees in the woods to having no real incentive to killing him, but wanting to anyway, that is the, that is the arc. That is the journey that our character goes on in this movie, yep. I guess. Cool. What's your favorite scene? Uh, it's going to be Tommy sparing Bernie's life in the woods. Nice. And it's, it's largely due to that Totoro monologue. Cool. It's really spectacular. Great pick. Uh, mine is the assassination attempt on Leo. Hmm. Yeah. Awesome. Wicked. All right. Performance review. Uh, I'll start off. Cool. I'll start with the obvious one. Uh, Gabriel Byrne. Okay. Uh, this is not um, award worthy. He doesn't. He doesn't get a cool monologue. He doesn't get any great scenes to showcase his acting. What he gets. What they get by casting Gabriel Byrne is this incredibly stoic, calculating man who is perfectly cast in this role. 
He is someone that other people can bounce off of. He knows how to set up and allow those around him to really shine. His reactions to things, his reactions to things because he has a lack of reaction because he's so intelligent and is always scoping out every scene perfectly, works great. This performance, in my opinion, um, because of the order I've seen them in, really reminds me of his performance in The Usual Suspects a lot. Mm -hmm. And I can see why he was cast in that role from this. He's perfect for that movie because of this performance. Mm -hmm. But because I've seen The Usual Suspects first and way more often, um, that connection... Uh, really works for me. He knows all the angles. There's only one time he doesn't know the angle and he gets saved because Bernie anticipated something. It's a scene we didn't talk about when they go back to check for Bernie's body and Bernie mm -hmm. has killed. Uh, yeah, fair enough. He's only alive because Bernie thought of something that mm -hmm. he didn't. Yeah. Um, but that's the only time he didn't have something planned. He keeps his cool in every situation, except for that one aforementioned situation that we just talked about when he throws up. I fucking love that part. Um, I think Gabriel Byrne is really good. Uh, I like the Dane's reaction to him throwing up, by the way, the Dane looking down at him and realizing in this moment, he's like, Oh, this dude's shitting his pants. Like there's no body out here. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's take a look here. Oh, wow, I actually haven't, I've only seen two of the Best Actor nominees from this year, and both of them I haven't seen in well over 15 years, so. Three of them, I don't know, well, of the two I've seen, I've seen Kevin Costner in Dance of the Wolves, and I've seen Robert De Niro in Awakenings. Um... I don't know if I can put, well, because I've got three open slots, fuck it. I'll put them in there. It's the first movie we've done in 1990. <laughs> what are the other 1990 movies I've seen? I'm going to need to go through my, I'm probably going to need to go through the year 1990 and just figure out what I have seen and what I haven't. It'd probably be a wise thing for me to do at some point or another. Okay, i got to pick. Oh, Christopher Walken and King of New York. That would be a nice one. Mm. Other than that, I'm not seeing any really strong lead male performances. Well, I'm very excited to watch these other ones. Okay, as of as of right now, fuck it. I'll throw Gabriel Byrne in there. <laughs> I'm just looking at 1990. I really haven't seen a whole lot of these movies. That's fair. And certainly not recently. Like, Goodfellas I've seen, but not recently. Uh, Edward Scissorhands... Like, the ones that I've seen recently that I would feel, like, prepared to talk about now in a pinch would be, like, Back to the Future 3, <laughs> uh, maybe It, maybe Tremors. It's a TV movie. That doesn't count. Oh, okay. That's listed on Letterboxd, but I have seen it. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of TV movies are listed on Letterboxd. Okay, fair enough. But yeah. Uh, it, that's, a, that's not eligible for anything. Die Hard 2? Like, what? Die Hard 2 is in 1990? I guess, yeah. What? Apparently. That's what, what I'm seeing here. So what's listed as on Letterboxd. Okay. Kind of makes sense. I mean, Die Hard 1's like 86, right? 88. 88? Yeah, there you go. 
You didn't think so, hey? Luckily, we've already talked about that one. We oh, won't have to revisit it. It's a 1990 it. movie. Yeah. How do I have it not fucking listed? I've watched that movie. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what to tell you, man. It's right there. How the fuck did I not fucking log that movie? You know what I may have to watch for myself, unfortunately? Shit, I'm going to have to fucking rewatch that. I might have to go watch Rocky Five. How did I not log this? Was this? Did we review this pre-letterbox? We must have. Maybe. Because I don't have it logged. Maybe we did. Shit. Watch list. <laughs> well, I'm going to rewatch it. I won't feel bad about rewatching it. We both gave it a two last time we watched it, hey? Did we really? I'm, There's I'm no cer- way. I'm, I'm certain that we did. There's no way I'm giving it a two. We both kind of shat on it. It was a, it was a tough time. December's tough for us. Especially in your old line of work. Anyway, we got a little derailed there. Where the heck are we right now? Your performance review. My performance review. Oh, we're moving on from Gabriel Byrne? Yeah. Unless you want to say something. Uh, you know what all I'll say about Gabriel Byrne is that uh, I've only seen him in... I gave it a three. You fucker. No way. Yeah, I'm looking at my score right now. I'm going to re-listen to that. I'm certain that we both gave it two. No, you gave it a two. I know, that, no I, I know that I gave it a There's two. There's no way I gave Die Hard 2 a two. I was like, you've got to be fucking kidding me. <laughs> I, uh, I had to check on that. I've only seen Gabriel Byrne in probably three or four movies, and he kind of feels like the same person in a lot of them. He just has this very calm persona about him. Um, I wonder what the other ones are, because uh, I know two of them. Obviously, Miller's Crossing and Usual Suspects. And Hereditary. And hereditary. Oh, you know what? I thought I'd seen him in more. I think it's just three. Yeah, it must just be those ones. Okay. I think those are the only ones I've seen him in. He's kind of the same person in all of them. <laughs> and hereditary is just kind of an older version of himself, but he's still very icy and cold. <laughs> now I need to look at his filmography. Okay, keep going. Yeah. Um. At any rate, I like his performance in the movie. He's good, not great. Not one of the highlights for me personally, but he does a good job of what's called for. Uh, has a couple of uh, sick burns that he's able to deliver. Uh, no pun intended on the word burn. Um. Yeah, not one of my favorites in the movie, but a, a absolutely solid lead and uh, very rock solid in his performance. He's got a movie coming out this year. Oh no, it's never mind. I got excited for a second. Hmm. That was a different movie that he was in. I got excited. I take it back. Yeah. Um, that's all for me for performance review for Gabriel Byrne. Where do we want to go from here? It's your pick. It's my pick. Okay. Let's uh, let's go with John Turturro. Shocker. Has the best scene in the movie, in my opinion. I disagree. But, <laughs> I'm sure you do. Uh, has the best scene in the movie, in my opinion, and uh, has amazing line deliveries and characteristics in all the scenes that he's in, apparently based his uh, portrayal off of the cinematographer. Apparently. Uh, Barry Levinson? Yes, That's I think so. Fucking hilarious. Apparently, based his portrayal off of. Oh no, sorry, uh, Sonnenfeld. Sonnenfeld. Yeah, who's Barry Levinson again? A different director. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, Barry Sonnenfeld. Uh, apparently, his performance is based off of him. So, um, a lot of fun, a lot of rapid fire dialogue. Uh, I can see why after this he earned himself a role in many a Cohen film. Was this his first Cohen? I film? think that's what I read. Yeah, interesting. That was his first Cohen film. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I I like Turturro. Mm-hmm. I've always... I shouldn't say I've always liked Turturro. He's, uh, his performances and roles in the Transformer films are uh, hard for me to endure um, in, a, in a massive way. I remember liking him when I was 11. That's fair. 
okay. Have you so, seen all the Transformers movies? No, I refuse. Yeah, good. Um. Okay, so I you know just, one one day the time is gonna come where you've where you're doing a deep dive on it every year. Like you're gonna do a deep dive oh, on 2009 I, or whenever Dark of the Moon came out, 2010, I, I think. I know. And you're gonna go back and you're gonna do those movies. I I know, <laughs> I know. I'm not excited. But. I still maintain the I still maintain the first Transformers is okay. It's fine. But yeah, yeah. the rest of them are bad. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. This is definitely his first. Uh, his uh, first Cohen, and he's in. Well, he's not. He takes a bit of a break. Oh fuck! He's so good in the Big Lebowski. Go! I fucking love him as Jesus. <laughs> you don't fuck with the Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> um, I love him in Do the Right Thing. Love him and do the right thing. That was one of the movies I downloaded onto my laptop for the flight, and it was the one that I did. I downloaded four movies for my flight, and I made it. Or sorry, downloaded five, five. movies for my flight, made it through four of them. Do the right thing is the one that I didn't watch. It's all right. Uh, yeah, he's he's obviously really good in this movie. Mm-hmm. Basically playing, I well, I don't want to say he's basically playing John Turturro, but he's. He's doing a John Turturro thing, and he's very good at it. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, gr- a great, great selection. Uh, I'm going to move on to Albert Finney as Leo. Sure. I love him as the mob boss. He exudes power. Absolutely knows how to play the man that runs the city, but is completely blinded by love. We see this often. They do play with a lot of tropes in this, but they just do it well. Um, I love how he basically, it's, it's almost like Tommy's a son he never had and he trusts him, but refuses to take his advice because he is in love with a woman who is no good for him. Like all noir films, Mm -hmm. uh, except Leo's not the main character, but, um, I just, I really like him. I think he is giving a really great performance. Nothing over the top, nothing really showy. Just one of those performances I really love. Albert Finney, Leo. Yeah, uh, admittedly not another one of the standouts for for me, but I mean he certainly did a, a fine job, and I liked his character. I thought him and Tommy had a very, uh, a very apparent connection. Mm-hmm. And I agree, you got the same same sort of vibe. Uh, the father he never had, or son he never had. Cool. Um, I'm gonna go with uh, John Polito nice. here as Casper. As Casper, another one of the best uh, in the movie. I mean, there's so many so many people you could choose as one of the best in the movies, but he's a smart guy with a lot of charisma. He's not a perfect mob boss. There's a reason he's second in command, but um, they intentionally it felt like didn't make him into being a doofus, and they didn't make him a super genius. They, yep. Uh, made him an interesting character with flaws, with things that he does really well, and with a ton of personality. Just yeah. personality oozing out of him. Um, there's a scene um, where he beats his son <laughs> and then comforts him, which has a weird, dark humor aspect to it. That's yeah. very Oh, Tony. did somebody hit you? Did somebody hit you? <laughs> Yeah, and then he even brings that back later when he talks. He talks about disciplining his children when he kills the Dane. I mm-hmm. think he talks about how he always tries to teach his son, uh, teach his kids, put one in the brain or yep. something like that. Um, yeah, a very interesting, very well performed, well written character. Uh, John Polito as Casper. Yeah, 
I, I love him. I, I think he's really great in this. Uh, how much experience do you have with Danny DeVito? Uh, some. Okay. Uh, I have him in this movie as a mix of Danny DeVito and Marlon Brando from The Godfather. Yeah. <laughs> that's how I saw him. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, I, I watched a fair, I, a little bit of Always Sunny. I'm only on like season two, and that's when Danny DeVito comes into the show. Okay. Um, I haven't watched any of it, but yeah. I watched a lot of his movies from the 80s and 90s. Yeah. I don't have, admittedly, the most experience, but like enough. I've seen Batman Returns. I've seen... Yeah, other stuff. Anyway, yeah. I have reasonable amount of experience with okay. DeVito. Um, I think John Polito is really great in this movie. Uh, like you said, all the minor characters in... Or, he's not even a minor character. This is a major character. This is a, a major supporting character in this mm-hmm. movie. Um, they're, they're just littered with incredible performance, and, and this is one of them. Uh, yeah, big fan of John Polito in this movie. Cool. Um, he gave me the hi-hat. <laughs> You're giving me the hi-hat. Yeah, I like that as a catchphrase for him. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to end with uh, Marsha Gay Harden, the nice. the lone female. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, um, I was trying to figure out where I just saw Danny DeVito's because he was in L.A. Confidential, which I watched this week. Yeah, yeah. wicked. Yeah. Uh, she's great in this movie. Um, not award-worthy, like not even close, to be honest, but she's not given much to do. She's She is... She's supposed to be the femme fatale, but she's not given enough to do to be a femme fatale. Mm-hmm. She's not. I know you had a problem with the Kim Basinger, Russell Crowe aspect. Mm-hmm. She doesn't have as much to do as Kim Basinger does in, in Lolly Confidential, mm-hmm. another great noir film. Yes. Um, but she's trying to be that, and I think she's good enough in it. A stronger actress would have been more captivating. Um but she's she's decent enough that I enjoyed her performance. She's not bad, but looking at it and stuff like that, it would have been it would have been nice for somebody either and I hate to say this, it's kind of shitty, either a stronger actor or somebody hotter mm. for me to fully understand why Tommy and Leo are willing to do the things they're doing for the love of this woman. Yeah. I I totally get where you're coming from, and I I felt the same way. Uh, she was good, um, not not the best written character in the world, which is a a rare blemish on a Coen Brothers script. But yeah, I felt it there too. It was she was fine. Uh, didn't really take anything away from my enjoyment of the movie, but felt like she wasn't given a ton to do. Cool. Got anybody else? No, that is that is it. All right, who are you picking? Favorite performance? I am gonna go. Oh man. It's close. I'm going to go with John Polito, actually. Really? Yeah. I had Turturro for you all the way. I fucking love Yeah, I'm calling it. an audible. I was going to go with John Turturro, but John Polito has more good scenes. Like, they're just more numerous. John Turturro has the best scene in the movie, but John Polito is more consistently entertaining and has more to do. I love that. Nice pick. It was oh, close. That, it was two-horse race. That made me happy. Uh, I'm not going with either one of your horses. I'm going with Albert Finney. I really, oh, nice. I really like his performance uh, as Leo. Uh, technical review, lead us off. I'll start easy. I'll start with the screenplay. Obviously brilliant. Uh, it's another in what would become a long line of Coen Brothers scripts that are just dynamite right out of the gate. Um, 
part of what makes the humor pop only really comes across on screen. I would actually be curious to read a Coen Brothers screenplay raw um, because I'd be really curious to see how a lot of these jokes are written. Mm-hmm. Um, a great example is that scene where the guy takes off his coat before going to beat uh, before going to beat Tommy and getting hit in the face with a chair. I'd be really curious to see how that scene's written to see if the comedy really comes across on the page because there's a part of me that really thinks that it wouldn't and that there's a lot of scenes where the comedy wouldn't come across, but I'd be uh, I'd be intrigued to see. At any rate, the screenplay is spectacular. It's a long, winding, intricate plot with, uh, with plenty of relationships to flesh out between multiple different characters and uh, plenty of excellent old-timey dialogue to boot. So really impressed by the screenplay. I fucking love the screenplay. Mm. I think it's absolutely fantastic. I love that it doesn't slow down for the audience at any point. Mm-mm. You either... You're on, and I love screenplays like this. They will not dumb it down for the audience. You either catch on. My per, my perfect example for this every time is the screenplay for LA Confidential. That movie has so many characters where you have to know people's names, and if you don't catch on, fucking see ya. Yeah. You're gonna be lost mm-hmm. because they reference so many people in that movie constantly. You have to know who each person is. This. This screenplay is very similar to that. Thankfully for the audience, for stupid people, that was really shitty of me to say. I don't care. It's like shitty people, stupid people. Um, you have to know who people are. They talk about it. They reference it. If you don't know who they're talking about, you're going to be like, what the f- who the fuck are they talking about? That's I love screenplays that don't dumb it down. Mm-mm. The dialogue is like a play. You could make this into a play. Uh, and it would be absolutely brilliant. The quick wit, the quick rat-a-tat talk of the characters just makes me giddy. Um, how this did not get fucking nominated? Uh, I've seen three. I just realized uh, one of the movies that got fucking nominated for Best Original Screenplay... <clears throat> is a movie I fucking did not like called Green Card. It is a romantic comedy. Now, the person behind the film is somebody that I don't know how much experience you have with his filmography. I know you've seen two of his movies, and I know you love them both. I don't know if you know him by name, but his name is Peter Weir. Yeah, so I want to say Master and Commander? Correct. And I don't know the other one is. Dead Poet Society. Oh, okay, yeah. He did both of those movies. He did this movie called Green Card. Not good. Mm -hmm. Not good. How the fuck that got nominated is beyond me, and this didn't. So that movie can fuck right off, and this gets in there for sure. Uh, Love the screenplay. I'm going to go to the score. I fucking love this score. Yep. I could not believe how much I was loving this score. It is... Huge uh, Irish and Celtic influence in it. Yep. Uh, It's perfect for this movie. It suits everything at all times. Uh, This score... There's not a lot to it, so I guess I kind of get why it didn't get nominated. Where's score? Okay, I love that score. All right, so John Williams, of course, got a nomination for Home Alone. Nice score. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
John Barry's score for Dances with Wolves wins, I have no problem with that. That's a good fucking score. Not familiar with it. I think you'll like it. I really do. Uh, and then the other three, uh, Randy Newman for Avalon. I haven't watched that yet. Uh, Maurice Jarre for Ghost. I actually don't remember that score, so I'm very excited to rewatch that movie to, to, get, to listen to it. And then Dave Grusin for a movie called Havana, which I've never seen and know nothing about. So that'll be fun for me to watch to see if it's any good. Are you you plan on watching all the films that are nominated for Oscars, right? I in the major to. in the major categories. I or? try to, yeah. yeah. Not like documentary short or anything like that, no, no, but no, 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 no. or even like documentary feature. I have the documentaries listed on my watch list. A couple of them are unavailable, like you can't even buy them. So they're they're completely unavailable. Hmm. Um, but a couple of them are on for free on like CTV and other apps. So like Tubi. Um, yeah. Like I think like Building Bombs um, is one. And then there's a documentary that Ray uh, really asked me to watch um, that I can't remember. I could look it up, but uh, I don't want to waste time fiddling around on there. There's a, by the way, this is kind of out of left field. Yeah, yeah. There's a 1990 movie that kind of came across my radar um, that I had never heard of before. Yeah. Uh, and the only reason I looked it up, or the only reason I came across it is because it has a 4.2 on Letterboxd. Holy like, fuck. Getting, it's called The Company of Strangers. Have you heard of that? It's uh, directed by Cynthia Scott. Let's see. Oh, sorry. It's only been logged by like... <laughs> it's only been logged by like 2,000 people. That's probably why. Ah. But it's got a 4.2. Like the people who watch it really liked it. So I don't really know. And it just had a really weird plot synopsis. Like apparently it's a lot of a lot of improvisation. And I don't know. It, it intrigued me, but I didn't realize how few people logged it. 2.2,000. A busload of women become stranded in an isolated part of the Canadian countryside. Oh, it's a Canadian film. Hmm. As they wait rescue, they reflect on their lives through a mostly ad-lib script. I don't recognize the director, and I don't know anybody in this movie. It's on Prime Video. It just intrigued me. I'll add it to my watch list. Hmm. I don't know if I'm going to wind up watching it, but I might. Anyway, where are we at here? We're doing... I just finished talking... Here? Well, I finished talking about the score. You yeah, I, I, I have you... nothing really beyond that to add other than I was... Uh, it, it felt unusual for a movie of this type to have sort of an Irish or Celtic influence score. It worked for me in most parts. Um, obviously, I don't think, I don't think you would consider. <laughs> it's funny, Danny Boy. I would consider part of the soundtrack because it's an existing song. But a, it's a folk song, so it's in the public domain. And b, it was an original arrangement for the movie. So arguably you could put that into score as well. But anyway, that's kind of that's kind of semantics at that point anyway. Regardless, music in the film works really well. And I'm glad you pointed it out. Um, let's go with the cinematography. Nice. Uh, why can't... Oh, this is one of the few... One of the few Cohen movies that's not uh, with Deacons as the DP. Um, and it looks great. It looks really good. I can only imagine after this film... Uh, I think it was the only one... I said it was Barry Sonnenfeld, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I have to imagine... I think it's the only one with Barry Sonnenfeld as the director of photography. And <laughs> I can only imagine being like, oh, great, we lost him. Who the hell are we going to get? And then you get <laughs> the greatest cinematographer of all time in uh, in Roger Deakins. Um, but yeah, the movie looks great. Uh, lots of great shots at the tops of the trees. The forests look excellent. Um, always have a number of great shots of... Uh, Tommy's eyes being obscured, which can sort of, 
uh, hide his intentions or hide how he feels, make him a little bit more of an ambiguous character. Um, the lighting and the close-ups, and you even get um, a lot of Cohen's signatures, like the, the fisheye lenses and the, the wide-angle lenses uh, that you would come to see in future movies. What are you looking at? Well, I was looking... Like, Barry Sonnenfeld's a director. Mm -hmm. He started off as a cinematographer and then became a director. He directed Men in Black. Right. Um, I was just taking a look at some of his other cinematography ones, and he was a cinematographer on movies I fucking love. Hmm. Like, love. Like, one we'll be reviewing later on, uh, Misery. Cool. And then he was the director of photography on Big and When Harry Met Sally. Oh, nice. Yeah. (laughs) Good for him. And Raising Arizona. Damn did I already add Raising Arizona to my and, list? I and Blood Simple. I'm going to add Raising Arizona to my list right now if it's not already on there. It I think is. Raising Arizona is on Disney right now, if I'm not mistaken. Let me check. Uh, it is dot 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 not on Disney, apparently. No? Is it on anything currently? Available for rent on Cineplex, YouTube, Amazon Video. Okay, so that it was, it was on Disney because hmm. that's where I mm-hmm. watched it. Uh, the... Cinematography, I think, is gorgeous. Uh, the the your favorite scene when they go to Miller's Crossing, I think, is um, the best example of incredible cinematography in this movie. I I love a lot of the shots. I love the shot. I really love the shots of Tommy when he's contemplating murdering uh, Bernie uh, as he's walking out there. The uh, shots framing everything in this movie uh is gorgeous i think it's uh, an, an excellent excellent um example of cinematography and yeah well he's not beating that one so i have to revisit those okay oh i have to watch henry and june again fuck me all right uh all right I'm going to go with costumes and hair and makeup because we cool. don't talk about those very often. We don't. Perfectly period specific. I think it really captures the era of that well. I don't think it's like award worthy, but I love everybody's look. It's, I shouldn't say it's simple. It's not easy to make everyone, you know, dress in suits, but there's nothing that seemed out of place and it really helped encapsulate <clears throat> and immerse myself into that era. Uh, I really like the I really like the the period pieces. If the, if there's more female characters in this movie with the fancy dresses, mm. I bet you this would have garnered a nomination. Yeah, probably. But, but because it's just suits. Yeah, I mean it's not uh, it's not Bugsy. <laughs> <laughs> that get a costume nomination? Pretty sure. I remember being pissed Fuck about yes, that. It did. I remember being pissed about I'm that. Double checking, but yeah, because it's just a bunch of dudes in suits. Ben Kingsley got a fucking supporting actor nom. It's terrible. Um, yeah, but I do agree. It uh, won. Oh, yeah, one. I remember being fucking devastated at that. Over Hook, that was the one yeah, we wanted. Yeah, which is so fucking stupid, honestly. Oh, uh, and the Adams Family. Jesus, good year. Um, sorry, we were talking, yeah, costumes and uh, and makeup. One of the things I like about the costuming in this movie is the prominent use of hats yes. in the story. Prominent, prominent use, the hat taking place in a dream, hats being a sign that somebody had been there, hat almost kind of used as an extension of characters in a lot of scenes um in particular i'm thinking of the scene where he's trying to track down bernie he's trying to figure out where he's been and he takes what he knows to be bernie's hat and puts it on his friend's head say 
hmm, looks like that one's gotten smaller on you. Or it looks like that one doesn't fit anymore. Mm-hmm. As if to, like, call attention to it. Like, yeah, I know he's been here. I know this is his hat. You tell him that I was looking for him. Like, stuff like that. Uh, very good attention to detail, especially in the costuming department. Awesome. You're up next. Let us go with... Uh, I mean, okay. Another kind of easy one, but the directing, you know? Um, The Coens right from the get-go, we kind of alluded to this, but in the early days especially, because of guild reasons, the guild only wanted one director to a film in most areas, and the Oscars, I believe, only gave awards to one name per award, especially in in the directing category. Yep. Uh, So they kind of split it up so that one of them was listed as the producer, one of them was listed as the director, but really they all kind of do everything. Yep. Um. But again, I, I like that you uh, both their fingerprints are all over this thing right from the get-go. It's so awesome to know that we live in a time with a partnership like this. Um, I don't know how you would even manage to come up with a partnership. I know it helps that they're brothers, certainly. But creating a partnership with someone where you just need to be certain that you have a united vision on each and everything would just be such a difficult undertaking. And these guys... Right from earlier, right from early in their career with this movie, just have such a good idea of what they want the tone of the film to be, such a united vision of what they want every character to do and say, and what they want them to sound like, and they're just so good at getting on the same page. It it never feels muddy or muddled or unfocused or anything like that, in my opinion, with the Coen Brothers movie. And right from 1990, their third film, they're already doing such a good job of producing a sprawling story, but with a with a tight vision. I hope that makes sense. Yep. Yeah. And that, that, all, that all stems back to directing. I know I kind of touched on, you know, they, they have their hands in everything, co-writing, co-directing, co-producing. But really, I mean, that's... We'll we'll call that directing for now. Sure, yeah, I, I'm. I would basically just be echoing everything you said. So I I agree. The directing is phenomenal. Again, how this was overlooked is beyond me. Um, looking at the director noms. Okay, well I've only seen three, so I've got some catching up to do. One of them, oh no, fuck that! I I just I watched the Grifters. That shouldn't be in there. Hmm. Okay. Yep. All right. Uh, I'm I'm all caught up on yeah, my... Yeah, me too. Uh, my pick is the screenplay. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think there's any question about that. Wicked. Uh, favorite quotes? Why don't you start us off? All right. Uh, for a movie with such a good screenplay, I found it difficult to pick up some quotes. Agreed. Mostly, mostly because I try not to do dialogue. Yep. Uh, because it's difficult to recite. Uh, mostly just try to get individual quotes. But regardless, uh, I did. Th- I think I managed to find five good ones, so here we go. Okay. Um, number one, all in all, not a bad guy, if looks, brains, and personality don't count. <laughs> uh, number two is uh, John Turturro begging for his life. Not going to do the entire thing, just mainly like the first half. But um, Tommy, you can't do this. You don't bump, guys. You're not like those animals back there. It's not right, Tom. They can't make us do this. It's the wrong situation. They can't make us different people than we are. We're not muscle. Tom, I... I never killed anyone. I used a little information for a chisel. That's all. It's my nature, Tom. I can't help it. Someone gives me an angle, I play it. I don't deserve to die for that. Do you think I do? Uh, And then he goes on and on from there. Okay. Uh, Number three, the old man's still an artist with the Thompson. Nice. (laughs) Uh, Number four is uh, from Verna. Maybe that's why I like you, Tom. I never met anyone who made being a son of a bitch such a point of pride. (laughs) I love it. And uh, number five, 
Hey, Tom, what's the rumpus? <laughs> Love it. All right. We only have one crossover. Wow. Uh, I'm with you. For a movie written so well, there wasn't a lot of quotable stuff, just some enjoyable dialogue. Um, so I've got one between the Dane and Tom. How'd you get the fat lip? Old war wound. Acts up around morons. <laughs> uh, number two is, hey, Tom, what's the rumpus? Uh, next up is from Casper. One thing I always try to teach my boys, always put one in the brain. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's one from Tom because he says it a, a few times, like you said in the script. I'll think about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the last one is from Tic Tac. You got to remember to put one in his brain. Your first shot puts him down. Then you put one in his brain. Then he's dead. Then we go home. Sam, what's your favorite quote? Uh, I don't know why this one stuck out to me so much, but it did. All in all, not a bad guy. If looks, brains, and personality don't count. <laughs> nice. Uh, mine's, hey, Tom, what's the rumpus? Because I might start using that. Yeah, I think I'm going to bring that back, too. Nice. What's the rumpus? Um, what was the weak link of the film? Um, I'm going to say, uh, hold on, I gotta get the name right real quick. Uh, the, the female lead. Marsha. Marsha. Marsha Gay Harden. Yep. Um, do no fault of her own. Maybe a little bit of a, an underwritten part and, uh, you know, these things are going to happen more and more as we go further back in time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't really have one. So my answer was people in 1990 being dumb and not watching this. True. Yeah. Bombed at the box office. Yeah. Cohen's went on record as saying that the budget that was reported was inaccurate. It was maybe a little bit inflated, but even so, I don't think they made money on this. There's no chance. Yeah. The only way they made money on this, they, it's listed at $14 million, mm-hmm. So for this to have made money, it would have had to be about a $1 million budget. Yeah. Because it only made five. Tough. Uh, <laughs> trivia. I only got a couple for you. Okay. Uh, writers Joel Cohen and Ethan Cohen suffered writer's block while writing Miller's Crossing. They took a three-week break and wrote Barton Fink, a film about a writer with writer's block. The name of Tom Regan's residence is the Barton Arms. In one of the newspapers, an article reads, Seven Dead in Hotel Fire, another reference to Barton Fink. <laughs> um, and the Miller of the title comes from the Coen Brothers' frequent film editor, Michael Miller. I like that they put that stuff in the, Me too. In the script. All right, I got some casting stuff for you, though. Uh, Steve Buscemi was cast as Mink because he could speak faster than anyone else. And could he ever. Yep. Uh, John Polito was originally offered the role of Eddie Dane. But he campaigned for the part of Johnny Casper. Hmm. I don't see him as the Dane. No, definitely not. Uh, the character, the, uh, the Dane, was originally written for Peter Stormare. I fucking love him. That would have been great casting, too. Uh, and was to be named the Swede. Stormare had to decline as he was appearing as Hamlet in the Broadway production. Uh, the part was then rewritten and recast and became the Dane. Hmm. Uh, the Coen brothers reportedly turned down Batman because it would have interfered with this film. I would have liked to have seen the Coen Brothers Batman. Me too. Me too. We can hold out hope. Uh, the character of Leo was written for Trey Wilson, who played Nathan Arizona Sr. in the Coen's previous film, Raising Arizona. Uh, Wilson died shortly before production began, so Albert Finney took over the role. Hmm. I like Albert Finney better than the other guy. Uh, and the, these are the three people that were that auditioned to play Verna. Uh, Julia Roberts, mm-hmm. Demi Moore, and Jennifer Jason Lee. Jennifer Jason Lee would have been really good. Yeah. Demi Moore's She's got a bit of an edge to her. Yeah. Demi Moore's not strong enough actor, mm-hmm. in my opinion. And Julia's too young. She's like 20. Yeah, would have been too young. I don't know if I would have found her believable. For, for what a great actor she is, I don't know if at this time in her career I would have found her believable in this sort of world. 
Yeah. I think Jennifer Jason Lee is the only one of those that I can find having like an edge to her. Yep. All right. Closing credits. Would you watch this movie again? Yes. I most certainly would and already have. Would mm-hmm. you recommend this movie to friends? Yes, I would. Fucking rights, I will. Sam, the MVP of the film? The Coens. Nice. <laughs> Cop-out answer, I know, but I'm going with it. Okay. I went specifically, I went with the screenplay. Mm-hmm. Uh, recommend a good double feature for this film. Um, okay. Yeah, you know what? I have two written down, but I'm really just going to go with this one, I think. There's okay. one that's, I think, so clear that you may even have the same one written down. We talked about it a few times tonight already. L.A. Confidential. Nope. That's not what I picked, it's but great, I love it. Great neo-noir film for anybody who hasn't seen it. Very similar in tone. If you like the the intricate weaving plot of this and the interesting side characters who who drive the plot, I think you'd probably like the pacing of LA, LA Confidential as well. I didn't think of that, and I'm really mad that I didn't. Mm-hmm. I love that pick. I like it better than mine, even though I love my movie as well. Which is? Uh, Road to Perdition. Oh, yeah. Another Irish gangster film. Cool. Yep. Uh, what will be this film's legacy? Uh, a forgotten Coen's movie. And uh, in the eyes of the general public, public, probably the... I have it written down the third best gangster movie of 1990. Oh, no, but that can't be right because I, I forgot there's three gangster movies. It's certainly not the third best, but it was the third most popular gangster movie in 1990. Third most popular in regards to what? How many people saw it? Nope. Nope. Was it not even third? Nope. What else was there? You, I'm sure you know I'm referring to Goodfellas and Godfather. Yeah, King of New York. Oh, okay. What other gangster movies did I watch this year? So far. So far. I haven't even watched them all yet. Let's see here. This. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, to answer the question, King if, of New York. if somebody asked me... Uh, oh, there's gangs in that movie. <laughs> there's gangs in that movie. It's not a gangster film, though. <laughs> If somebody asked me what the legacy of this film is, I'd say there isn't much of one. It's a forgotten Coen's movie. I, I have, there, for- is, there is no legacy. It's an underseen gem. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you learn anything from this movie? I didn't. I don't have anything written down. Um, I didn't really have an aha, this is the thesis of the movie sort of moment. If, if anything, I would say it's that uh, untrustworthy people aren't worth your time to keep alive nice that would be that's kind of what the main character learns in this movie i cool. think uh i went with uh stay cool under pressure and think about it mm. yeah i like that i actually like that better i think awesome what's your final thoughts uh yeah i'm happy to have checked this one out it really inspired me to go back and uh i think i'm gonna have to elevate raising arizona on my watch list a little bit because uh, i've had it recommended by so many people and the more i watch the coens the more i like them um Another movie I added to my watch list while we were doing this, I was just kind of perusing through their filmography, and I realized that there's this sweet spot of 2007 to 2013 where, like, most of my favorite Coen's movies live, and there's one critically acclaimed film in there, which I hear about all the time, which I've never seen, which I'm going to prioritize, and that is? True Grit? Yes. Yes! (laughs) So fucking good! Yeah, so I added that to my watch list as well. Wicked. Yeah, but... um. As far as Miller's Crossing is concerned, um, I went in with no expectations, so I could not be disappointed, and I could not be anything other than surprised. Uh, but I really liked the intricate nature of the plot, and uh, it's just very interesting to see this in the context of their entire filmography, because you can really take a lot of aspects and extrapolate them 
to mm -hmm. their other sort of crime movies. Like, uh, you can totally see how the writers of this film went on to write Fargo. Like, those are, they're just very closely interconnected movies. Um, yeah, I feel like I am just repeating myself at this point, but, uh, have, had a good time for sure. Awesome. I fucking love this movie. Mm. Absolutely fucking love this movie. I'm always a fan of, of gangster films. Uh, and this, in my opinion, is one of the best ones I've watched in a long time. Mm -hmm. I had a great time with all the characters. I love Albert Finney. I love John Turturro. I love John Polito. I love Gabriel Byrne. I think the movie is absolutely an underseen and underappreciated gem that I hope everybody ends up watching at some point. Mm -hmm. And I can't wait to watch it again. This is a movie that I plan on revisiting probably quite regularly. Sam, it's time to give this movie a rating. What are you giving it? I, uh, so I, I'll refrain from saying what I'm about to say until after you give yours. Uh, I'm going to give this a four. Okay. That's where it's going to live. And you, Manny, give it, of course. A five. Okay. So I knew that you were going to give it a five. I knew, or at least I knew that you had given it a five last time. And I was pretty sure you were going to give it a five. And I, this exact situation is why I try not to know. I try to know as little about a film as I possibly can before going into it. Yep. Uh, and I, that includes what other people think of it yes or like the fact that they think of it in such high regard specifically you though like specifically i try not to know your opinion on a film because i don't want it to sway my opinion i don't want it to affect my experience yeah i did feel myself expecting a five-star movie a little bit in this one <laughs> um because i knew that you would give it a five that's that's not your fault of course yeah. uh but well, it's it's part of it I yeah it. it's just part of the experience and uh, you you phase out what you can Yep. So yeah, I did find myself a little a little let down in that regard, not by any one particular thing, but just that I didn't enjoy it to a five level. And I'm, There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. I can tell you, I've watched it three times. Mm -hmm. I watched it the first time I gave it a five. I rewatched it last week, preparing for last week. You were unable to do it. Mm -hmm. It was a four. Oh, wow. I rewatched it yesterday to get back. It, it was a five. Wow. So it bounced. It's a five. Yeah. I think this could probably... this could be elevated for me but um honestly I, I think it's also partially because i watched this today and as i've talked about with you i've i've been beat i've been dead yeah. tired so i i really wasn't in a place to to have a new favorite introduced today there's nothing so, wrong with a four yeah totally. there's nothing wrong with a four yeah i shouldn't have to explain myself i'm not but, complaining for a four yeah, totally uh all right sam part two of 1990 what's going on Next week, episode 253, the 1990 Best Picture nominee. Yeah. Awakenings. Awakenings. Sam, have you seen Awakenings? Not only have I not seen Awakenings, I have no idea about it. I don't know who's in it. I don't know who directed it. I don't know anything. I have no idea. All right. So what is Awakenings going to be about? Uh, so when I hear Awakenings, when I hear that word, I, th for some reason, the only phrase that comes into my mind, sexual awakenings. Oh, That's that's all that I can think. I'm going to say Ooh. this is this is an erotic film. Oh, wow. Um, but uh, you know what? Yeah, it's, it's a... <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> I'm just trying to think. I, I, I'm trying to think of where my brain wants to even go with this. My stupid, tired brain that uh, has been awake for so long. Yeah, it's a, it's a movie about a sexual awakening of... Let's say a housewife who uh, oh, gets... Who gets divorced i'm kind of i'm low-key gonna steal the plot of marvelous mrs Maisel here but i'm gonna run with it uh housewife gets divorced and uh because of it uh, goes on a uh, journey of sexual self-discovery 
That is that is the plot of Awakenings. Excellent. Excellent. All right. Well, we'll see how close you are when we watch Awakenings next week. Sweet. All right. Uh, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. If it's a five-star rating and a positive review, it will help increase the profile of our podcast. allows more people to find us, which we greatly appreciate. You can also give us a five-star rating on Spotify, which would also help. It takes mere moments for you to do so, and we would love it if you did. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Sam underscore Manny underscore movie. You can follow us on... What? Follow us where? Oh, on Facebook at the Samuel Manny Movie Podcast. You can email us at sammannymoviepodcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Letterboxd. That's there it the other is. One. Thank you. At Manny42 and Sam Reimer. For the Samuel Emanuel Movie Podcast, I'm Manny Manuel. I'm sick of the hi-hat. I'm Sam Reimer. Adios!